And then out of nowhere comes this crazy, you know, rave music, people dancing in films, there's a summer of love. In fighting in, in this middle of this rave with these guys, we've rushed them through the fire doors. And then in the car park, it was like the Wild West. You know those guys? Yes. Well, they're putting balaclavas on and they're loading up machine guns in the car park. And I said, uh, well, I can't really leave my rave. And he said, well, if you don't, these people are going to kill you. He said, I'm going to come back and shoot you. And he came back with a gun. I think he, sh- he killed one of the doormen and he shot another one of them and wounded him. I thought it, there was something special about that film, right? But with all these films that I've made, every time I make a film, I think it's special. Otherwise, I wouldn't make it, right? And sometimes they're fucking great. Sometimes they're mediocre. Sometimes they're not. Because at the time, there was North East, South West, and they all wanted to kill each other. So you had all these crews and all these gangs. There was people getting raped, mugged, murdered, stabbed, shot. Their houses burgled, their cars broken into. You know, you look at you know, LA, and you talk about Compton, you talk about the hood, that's what these places were like, right? You know, you walk around there, you are going to get turned over, and I'm going to do them with a fence. I was like, what? And literally, put up to the fence, picked this f***ing fence up, right? Went like that with it, and then as he did it, they all f***ing rushed forward, and he just ran out with, ah! He's just done them all with his fence. And they were f***ing lunatics. They were running around, beating people up, Craig Ralph injected that guy and f***ing killed him. I mean, they, they were off-key. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, uh, Up. And before this one even came in, Jen was already gagging to try this product, weren't you, Jen? I was literally going to purchase it before they sent it, and they sent us five wonderful flavours. So today I'm going to sample the apple flavour. And how it works is through the sense of smell. So instead of having a drink that's flavoured with all that rubbish in it, you are getting activated through the olfactory receptors in your nose, and you are thinking if this flavour's in the drink, but it's not, but it's... Takes your senses to a whole new dimension. And it's wild because you're not drinking disgusting fizzy drinks. So this is perfect for the gym. And for Christmas, the new chocolate orange flavour is out. And if you go to the website, you can check out the Christmas bundles. This is at Erop's website. Link in the description box. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Delicious, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, watering at the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I will show you how to use this simple pod. Is you just pop it over the nozzle here. And you lift it up till it naturally stops. Oh, yes. Try oh, some of that. I like that you were desperate. Try some of that. <laughs> the flavour's intense as well, isn't it? Why do you think this would make the perfect Christmas gift, Jen? Because you always overindulge over Christmas and you know what it's like in the January period. You all want to lose weight. Turkey burners at the gym. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, this bottle is absolutely awesome. I'm, it's my new gym bottle, so thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Link is in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Right, here we go. We have got... 
Terry Stone. When I got released in 2007, mates were saying, you've got to watch this movie, Rise of the Foot Soldier. I've just listened to Terry's audiobook and his real-life stories parallel, perhaps not to the degree, but almost what was portrayed in Foot Soldier. That's why perhaps he was such a good role for him. I mean, that bit, many of you have seen it. Shout out to Hammy, one of my best mates. He was one of the first to tell me about it. (laughs) Well, you're beating the guy up and he's like, burn him, burn him. And your face, your face is just got that manic clockwork orange smile. You're looking down on the guy. It's, It's brilliant. It's genius. Would you know? Well, back 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 uh, in the day, obviously, I was referred to as Terry Turbo then. Terry um, Turbo. And uh, if anyone's wondering where the name Terry Turbo come from, <laughs> um, I used to break dance yeah. as a kid. So I used to be in like UK rap music. I was a really bad break dancer. There was a movie called Break Dance the Movie, and uh, you know there was a guy in it called Turbo. So people used to call me Terry Turbo which then become Turbo Terry. Um, and that was the nickname. I had many punch-ups at school over that name. Um, and then I just embraced it. Um, and then, you know, throughout uh, my, I'd say probably from like 18 to 19 to 20, um, that period of time, there was a really bad recession, similar to what is happening in the world now, where the interest rates were high, people losing their jobs, business was going out of, out of, you know, business and, and and people were just looking for something to do, looking for somewhere to go. And then out of nowhere comes this crazy, you know, rave music, people dancing in films, there's a summer of love, people are taking ecstasy. You know, at the time I was boxing, I was running half marathons, I was like Captain Sensible. You know, the last thing I would ever entertain is taking any drugs. So when it comes to people dancing in fields and taking drugs – I was always like, why are they doing that? You know, they're all junkies. You know, I was sort of like looked down, even though I lived on a council estate where there's a lot of people taking drugs, it was very um, just not me. And then, you know, my experiences of clubbing were sticky carpets, um, you know, getting drunk, trying to, you know, chat up a girl, having a fight, having a kebab and then going home. That was, sometimes you were sick, right? But that was like a, a, a night out probably for most people, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And then the rave scene came along. And I had all these, I lost my job. And I remember for about six months, everyone kept going about these raves. You've got to come to the raves. You've got to come to the raves. And I was like, I'm not going to the raves. People take drugs, blah, blah, blah. And one day, my mate said, I'm going to Worthing to a club called Stearns. You should come. I was a fucking rave. I told you I'm going to go. Terry, you've got to come, right? It's the best thing you've ever been to change your life so i go to this rave i walk in the door and there's three thousand people in this fucking rave and it was in this like old anyone who went to stern's back in the day it's an old country manor on three floors so i walked in there and i think cole cox was playing oh yeah and at the time he was doing three decks he was scratching he was mixing he was doing all this stuff and i was like fucking hell, i've never you know normally it's a dj going pressing a button going like that pressing a button it was like DJs, right, in, in the clubs, right? And there was always trouble. So I walk into this club, I'm seeing this DJ, I'm seeing all these people dancing, and I'm like, oh, it's like lively in here. Then this girl comes up to me, she goes, come and have a dance with me. And she's grabbed me and took me on the dance floor. <laughs> and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, 
I'm getting chatted up, you know, like this. And then uh, I had guys come up to me, how you doing, mate? What's your name? Blah, blah. And I was like to my mate, everyone's so friendly in here. I said, it, it was like somebody opening that Pandora's box and you're walking into this alternative reality and just going, wow, you know, where do I fucking sign? <laughs> so um, obviously at the time I didn't realise it was because that was all off their heads. But the thing is, that was the taste. And when I come out of the club at... Three, four in the morning, whatever time it finished. Um, and this was a, this wasn't a legal dance party. This was an actual licensed premises. Um, and it was one of the most famous rave venues in, in the UK. And I remember walking out of this, this, this rave venue and there was guys giving and girls giving out these flyers. And I looked at them and I was like, do you get paid for this? And they went, yeah. I said, you got any jobs? Right. <laughs> and then I literally got the guy's number, phoned him up. I said, look, I've got a load of my mates who go out raving. If you can get us in for free and we come out and give out the flyers, will you pay us? And he went, absolutely. And I said, what'd you pay? And he said, 10 pound a head. So I had like 20 mates. So I said, if you, can you get 20 of us in? And he went, yeah, sure. And I said, can we go anywhere? And he went, anywhere you want. So I said, great. So I phoned my mates up. I said, right. I said, we can go out Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday on me, but you'll give the flyers out. Right, that's the deal. When I'm getting paid, but you're getting in for free. So you're saving you 20 quid. We're getting walked to the front of the queue. So they was all like, sweet, let's do it. So I then could come off the dole because obviously now I'm earning, you know, what was big money then? You know, bear in mind when I was working at McDonald's, which was my first job, I was on £2.65 an hour, right? So fast forward a couple of years and I'm, you know, now got 20 people getting 200 quid a night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday. So I'm in a grand a week. So that, which was big money then. So I didn't always earn that. But then what I, what I worked out pretty quickly was on the back of these flyers, there was no one where I was living selling tickets. But there's a lot of record shops selling tickets. So I've just rung all the promoters up and said, I'm giving out your flyers and promoting your events. Why don't you put me on the tickets out? And they was like, all right, we'll put you on the tickets out. So then I'll become a ticket out. So... I was giving out the flyers, selling the tickets, fast forward another year, two years. And then I was doing, um, I thought nobody's, there's not a magazine representing the scene, right? So I come up with a really original name <laughs> called The Scene Magazine, right? <laughs> and it started off as a, I think it was like, so, so it was like a 16 page black and white magazine, which we were, giving away for free. And the idea was we get advertisers to pay for it. Um, so I rang up a few of the people and said, look, do you want to put your advert in? We're going to give these away for free. We're going to press up 10,000. And there was a couple of news articles in there. But then it grew really rapidly and it went from, it went up to 128 pages at one point. Now, bear in mind, when I left school, I got a grade five CSE. So I'm hardly qualified to be a magazine editor. <laughs> But I think because it was so badly written, it was funny <laughs> and it appealed to ravers. And we did, mm. I mean, the pages in there, we, my mum was the agony aunt. So, you know, like you used to have Dear Deirdre, where people write their problems. Well, people would write to my mum about their <laughs> about their rave problems. And she had like this headscarf. Do you remember the glasses? They like they looked like, you know, nerd yeah. glass, really thick glasses, like on the side. <laughs> and she had a cigarette in her mouth. She's like that. So it was, it was hilarious right could you remember any of the rave problems that well it was just stupid things like you know um uh i'd I'd have to actually get the the magazine bear in mind we're talking about something that happened Mm. 
25 years ago, yeah, right? So yeah. my mind's a little hazy, but <laughs> it was it was just comical. It was a bit like Viz magazine for ravers, yeah. right? Um, or, or in America, they had that mad magazine, but mm. it was that sort of funny thing. And then uh, um, we had, we, we did reviews of the club nights. We did interviews with DJs, but one of the funniest things uh, was Dave Courtney, who you've interviewed. Um, he used to do a column for us. R.I.P. Called Dodgy Dave's Rave Page. <laughs> and, and obviously back in the 90s, for anybody who doesn't know who Dave Courtney is, I'm sure you will know who he is. Um, he used to go out and he was a big clubbing guy. He used to like partying. So it would just basically be what he's been doing over that month. And obviously he had some hilarious stories. Um, and at one point, I don't know what happened, but he, he actually went to jail. And I said, oh, Dave, you know, I'm going to have to get somebody else to do the thing while you're in jail. But he went, no, because we're doing Dodgy Dave's page from the inside. So it was like we – so we had Dodgy Dave rave diaries. Then we had Dodgy Dave's, um, you know, jail diaries, which was really good fun. So that was all, um, you know, part of that. And then and then one day someone said to me, oh, you know, give me that fly. You send the tickets. You got the magazine. You put a rave on. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And I sort of, there was a song back in the day, which um, for any ravers would all remember it. Um, and it was called One Nation Under a Groove. And uh, I remember that song because when I first used to go rave it <clears throat> um, in London, there used to be a thing called Breakfast Club. And when we was giving out flyers all night, obviously that was somewhere where you, it would start at six in the morning. So you'd be giving out flyers all night, driving around London, going out Milton Keynes. And then you'd end up in this club. And they play all break for love and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then that song would come on. <laughs> One nation under a groove. And I listened to the music and I was like, that's what I'm going to call my rave. So that's was the birth of One Nation. Um, and then four years after that, we did Gary's Nation. So yeah, you know, I, I, I never set out to be a club promoter, but I ended up obviously becoming one. And, uh, you know, when I first started off, it was lovely. It was fun. You know, you put on an event, you know, people turn up, you break even on one, you make a little bit of money on another, run a weekly club night, you know, just get a little bit of money from that. Um, but then I think when I started to get on people's radars before, um, you know, the, the, the rave scene become legitimized because back, in the day when it started, it was people dancing in fields mm. and it was mainly run by sort of football hooligans and gangsters and, you know, unsavory characters. And obviously, you know, for them, it's like they were probably doing everything. You know, they were, it was a cash business. It was their security. They were probably selling drugs. They were probably just thinking, this is great. We can just make all. And some of these events, you were getting 30, 35,000 people turn up in a field paying 25 pounds. So if you were selling the drink, the drugs, and the tickets, I mean, they was probably earning millions. It, yeah, I mean, maybe not. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe it's half a million, but it was a lot of money, and it was all cash. And obviously, they got to a point when the criminal justice bill was passed. They they said we don't want these raves anymore. Um, and a lot of the people that I knew that were putting these raves on, they would put a rave on, make a load of money, and they go on a bender for. Mm a month or two months and they'd be in hotels, they'd be with girls, they'd be taking drugs, they'd be partying, they'd run out of money and they'd go, right, put another rave on now. So when I got into it, I was always sort of like, you know, this is a business, you know, and and I was probably naive. 
because even though I was a, from a council estate and I boxed and, you know, I wasn't a, a tough guy, but I could have a row, right? So I wasn't really that worried about going into London. But then when I started going into London, people said, you started hearing these horror stories where his doorman had turned the promoter over and robbed all the money. Um, you had these firms putting it on promoters, people getting kidnapped, tied up, all sorts of stuff. And uh, someone said to me, you know, look, you're 20 years old, you're a kid from Surrey, and, uh, you know, these people in London are saying, who's this kid from Surrey coming and taking their money? So you need to make sure you get some protection. Um, so I went to Boots, um, but they didn't have any Durex in my size. <laughs> 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 but um, um, but we, where we lived, I lived in uh, Camberley, and I used to run a club in Aldershot for probably a couple of years called the Rhythm Station. Aldershot's wild. Well, it was the Wild West. And literally... When the guy said to me, I want you to run a rave, because they were the only club in in, uh, in the Thames Valley that had a six o'clock licence. So they approached me and they said, you're doing raves. Um, you're a local kid. Do you want to run this for us? Right? We'll put all the money up. You book all the DJs. And then what we do is we'll uh, put, uh, uh, what do you call it? We'll put, we'll put, uh, we'll pay you so much per head. And then if we make any money, right, we'll pay you a share of the profit. And you can have free drinks all night and have and however many of your mates come in for free. So I said, all right, sweet. And he goes, why don't you pop down Saturday night? Because that's the last night we're doing their normal club night. So I've gone in there. As I walk in, there's a fight, right? And I'm thinking, fucking hell, you know, we're going to put on a rave here where people are meant to be nice and happy. And there's people fighting in this club, right? And I saw the doorman deal with it like really quickly. And I went and had a drink at the bar and it was quite moody in there. And I said to the guy, I said, look, I'm going to have this drink and I'm going to go, but I'll see you next week. And as I'm walking out, this woman has been like thrown through the door. And then this guy has been thrown through the door and they're both like on their ass on the pavement. Right. And then he gets up and starts going, you fucking noise to this woman, like his wife. <laughs> and then she goes, you fucking, and he, he turns it back and as he walks off, she took her heel off, run up to him and just done him in the back of the head. He had this stiletto hanging out of his head, right? <laughs> and, he, and he's standing there going, did you fucking hit me with your shoe? And they started fighting, <laughs> like beating each other up. And I'm just like going, fucking hell, I can't, but what am I getting into here, right? <laughs> and then the next week, obviously it was a different crowd because it was rave and we had different DJs. Um, but I got talking to the doorman and I was like, how the f*** do you work here with these, like, in lunatics and he said all the shots are a dangerous place because you've got all of the army the squaddies that come out for a fight and there's parachute regiments in all the shop right so they love fighting alex reed <laughs> you had alex reed cage fighters you had you had the local criminals you had the local people for council state it was a melting pot of violence all the shot and um you know people used to go to all the shot um and and from from where we were to beat up Soldiers, right? Because what happened in uh, Camberley is a lot of the army boys went to Camberley because they thought it was posh and all the shot. And then what they do is they come into the clubs and they'd like beat up the people from Camberley. So the people from Camberley used to get in the car and drive to all the shot to find this anybody who looks like a squad and just bash them up. So so the people actually went to all the shot for fucking violence, right? So 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 as I'm talking to these guys, one of them was an ex SAS guy, right? And uh, I I said to him, I said, oh, you know, blah blah blah. And I got all their numbers. So you fast forward to when I then start coming into London doing these raves. And back then, the venues were Peckham, Brixton, Stratford, Tottenham. 
what these areas now are quite nice, right? But back then it was like the hood. I right? went to the fridge. Was that Brixton? It was. Yeah, this was like nineteen ninety-ish. But you, but you, you go if you go to America, mm. and you know you look at you know LA, and you talk about Compton, you talk about the hood. That's what these places were like, right? You know, you walk around there, you are going to get turned over. Right, you know, and you imagine you've got three to five thousand people from all over the country turning up in this area. Some are coming on trains, some are parking their cars, they're all wandering around, they don't know where they are. So, for the locals, they're like, Great, we're gonna have an earner here. So, um, I just thought, you know, I need to make sure a that I can get to the venue. And my mum used to work with me in a cash box, <laughs> my girlfriend. So it was like a family thing. So I didn't trust anyone else. So I thought I got my mum and my girlfriend at the time in the cash box, taking the money. I need to make sure I'm protected. They're protected. And also, could you heard all these stories about these doormen letting in people selling drugs, uh, turning the promoters over, you know, letting people in the fire exits and not searching them. And obviously at the time then guns and knives were regular even though they're not allowed in England, mm. they were a regular thing. So um, I, I, I said to this guy, this guy, I said to him, listen, I said, um, I need somebody like you and I need a team of people, right? Because I said, we're going into these places and uh, I know you ain't going to run away and I know that you are used to extreme violence and you enjoy it. So I probably need three or four guys with you um, and then that ended up ended up being 10, Right. So I was right. And I had a dog handler as well. So we had a special force dog handler with two Dobermans that were tack dogs. Right. So it started off with four and then it grew to 10. And, you know, people would say, why have you got these guys? And I just say, you know, I keep hearing these stories. And obviously we did have problems with people. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when we did have problems, it, it got sorted out pretty quickly <laughs> indeed the book had me gripped like crazy with your handling of these problems and one of the stories i would love to hear in detail is when the manchester gang came down oh yeah i mean uh i mean what happened was um you know we 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 went up to milton Keynes, and milton Keynes is is not a particularly bad place um but we put on a, a garage nation event and uh at the time, there was there was issues. Uh, this was the late nineties, and there was people getting shot dead. There was drive by shootings. There was quite a few bad things happening in the UK garage scene, um, and also the, the the jungle drum and bass scene. You know, it, it was sort of like you know, and and I think the Manchester at the time was obviously called Gunchester, and uh, there was a lot of gun crime in Manchester, probably worse than anywhere else in England, and um, these this firm come down from Manchester, turned up at our event. <clears throat> and uh, there was probably about 15 or 16 of these guys. And I was all fairly young, um, but they turned up and the, one of my guys who, who, who knew all the sort of gang bangers. And he, he was all, he was always like respectful to him. And he was always like, look, you know, we treat them well, they treat us well. And if, you know, so there was an understanding. So so when these guys come in, the, you know, the dorm was like, we don't really want to let me in. I said, I don't want to let me in, right? And then he had a chat to me. He went, tell, look, from Manchester, we know they're with, I know the, you know, their bosses or whatever. You know, um, you know, they said they're going to behave, they're going to be respectful. You know, if we don't let them in, we are going to have a 
problem with them, right? Because they are lively, right? So he said, we can either have a problem with them now or they've assured me, and I do know the guys above them in Manchester, so if there is a problem, we, you know, we sort it out. So I said, well, you know, if you think they're going to behave, let them in. If they f*** about, they're going to go. And uh, he went, he went, okay. So he had a word with them. They went in. Now, this must have been about 11.30. At midnight, people start leaving. So I'm thinking, people have only just started arriving, really, 10.30, 11, 11.30. It's only just getting going. It don't really get going till 1. So people leaving at 12, I thought, it's a bit odd. So I stopped this couple leaving. And I said to the guy, yeah, why are you going? And he said, oh, there's these guys in there with their woods up. And they just kicked, kicked me up the arse. And I was touching my missus up. And, and I turned around and said, like, what, what are you doing? And they all, like, surrounded me and started putting it on me. And I said, what did they sound like? He said, they're from up north. And I said, what did they wear? And it was them, right? So I said to my mate, I said, I told you we shouldn't let me in. They've got to go, right? So he said, oh, we talked to him, we talked to him. So as we walk in, we sort of, so there, there was it's only 10 of us, and it was like 15. We sort of surrounded them sort of like that. And just, you know, my, let my mate do the talking. And as he's talking, the guy, the guy started getting leery. And I said, listen, mate. And he goes, who are you talking to? So I've just f***ing nutted him, grabbed him around the throat, and then it's gone off, right? So we're now f***ing fighting in, in, in this middle of this raid with these f***ing guys. We've rushed them through the fire doors. And then in the car park, it was like the f***ing Wild West. We were just like f***ing hitting them. Like f and and then as we were doing them, we were like throwing them in a f***ing ditch, right? So there was, they was all like laying in this ditch. They was all like piled up. And then we've like shut the doors. And I've got in and I've gone, fuck sake. And I said, I said, make sure you ring your mate and fucking tell him about these because of what they've done. So I then walk in and I always used to have a spotter in the car park because I was always worried that somebody was going to come up and, and try and shoot somebody. And because my mum and my girlfriend was there, I was always worried because they're sat in the cash box and somebody at a rave, there was an altercation outside and somebody did let a gun off. And the woman did get shot in the cash box. So I was always paranoid that that could be my mum or my girlfriend or me, right? So everyone I had, we all had bulletproof vests and I always had to spot her outside. So we get a call on the radio saying, you know those guys? Yes. Well, they're putting balaclavas on and they're loading up machine guns in the car park. So I was like, okay, lock the doors, bring the police, right? Because... Yeah, we, 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 we haven't got any machine guns to have a fucking gunfight with them, right? So um, the police were there within a minute. So, you know, when you do these events at that time, they was obviously aware and they obviously have intel that people are going to be there that may cause trouble. And within a minute, there was our response. And it was like a load of soldiers with helmets, MP5 machine guns, literally just... In, it's like twelve thirty, right, on a Saturday night, and they're all standing outside, and people still turn up. And you can see people turn up, going like, it's a "Bit f***ing security, it's a bit oddy." <laughs> um, it was like the army had descended, and uh, the police inspector come in, and he said, "Look, he said um, you need to go, right." And I said, uh, "Well, I can't really leave my rave." And he said, "Well, if you don't, these people are going to kill you, right?" And I said. And he's gonna—they're gonna probably—you're gonna probably kill a lot of people. It's not just gonna be you because you know we know that somebody's come on a motorbike and they've taken whatever they had away. And I said, "Well, my guy saw him with it looked like machine guns. They were loading up in the car park." And he said, "Well, we've checked them out. They are gang affiliated, and they have all done armed robbery. They have murdered people." He said, "You know, they are serious people. So you need to go, right?" So I said to my mate, 
you're going to have to stay here, but we're going to have to go because we're getting an armed response escort home. Um, so we get we get in the car, my mum, my girlfriend, my mate who's driving and the other guy. And then one of the other guys said, look, I'm going to drive up in my car, even though the police are there, just in case, right, because I just ran off the road. So I was like, okay. So um, we didn't have a dog handler um, at this point. But after this event, we that's when we got the dog handler, right? Um, and what happened was we drive down the road and then as we get onto the... M1 to go back down towards London. He phones me and he goes, um, he goes, Terry, he goes, I meant to say this to you earlier, but he said, um, uh, I am going to take him out in this car if I have to. But he said, I've got one problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, I'm only insured for party phone. <laughs> so he said, if I do use my car to take him out, I'm not going to be out clamming insurance. So I said, don't worry about buying you car. But that was like just one of the, crazy incidents and then you know my guy then phoned the people in manchester and said these guys come down this is what they've done and they all got reprimanded when they got back but the thing is the problem with what i refer to as a young turks they're all out to make a name for themselves and you know they didn't know you know look if you turn up somewhere and you're from a gang and someone says to you i know someone's home man manchester they go yeah, all right, yeah, we'd be respectful. But they probably think you're just saying that, right? You don't really know them. But w this guy really did know them. So it got sorted out and there was no more problems. But um, take it, you know, I di didn't go to Manchester to do any raves after that. Cause I, and I did, I, actually, I lie, I did go to Manchester because um, somebody did a, an event at the GMEX, 15,000 people, and we, they wanted to do a Gary's Nation event. So I went up there and in the back of my head, I was thinking, I hope these guys don't turn up or one of them goes, oh, that's that, that's that lot who we've, you know, let's go and do something. Even though, you know, at the end of the day, they, they just get told off. It's not like anything's going to happen to them. So, so I was actually standing at the entrance to the GMEX and I saw these guys come up and they actually went up to the dormer. Now, bear in mind, there's a wall of metal detectors and there's these guys and everyone's walking through the metal detectors and these guys walked up and went like that and the guy walked and ran the metal detectors so I was like I'm fucking going do you know what I mean straight away I'm not standing around here because even if it isn't for me if if I know somebody's wandering around that fucking venue with whatever they've got in their jacket that they don't want to be um, walking through a metal detector for and the security have just let them walk through anything could happen and you know there's so many um shootings or there was a lot of shootings in the club scenes which um innocent people happened to be standing in the wrong place and somebody's let a gun off and the bullets hit there gone there and it's hit them in the head and killed them uh, or it's in you know hit them in the back and they can't walk again you know so i was always really worried about that happening touchwood we never had any shootings but that was the closest we'd ever come to actually having uh, a, a massacre if you like a uh, club night yeah which was meant to be a f safe place for people to enjoy dance music you mentioned there was a cashier who got shot yeah what was the backstory there well there was a there was a club in east london called the stratford rex and uh i mean we, we've had this a couple of times uh and i don't know what night was on but the week before our event there was an issue where somebody come out of the club and they had a row with a doorman 
And uh, the guy said, I'm going to come back and shoot you. And the guy went, yeah, mate, all right, well, I'm here. Go and get your gun and come and shoot me. And then the guy come back and just went, back, 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 um, shot the doorman, shot the ceiling, went into the cash box and it hit the girl. I mean, she lived, thank God, and the mm. doorman lived. But this this, this is the week before event. So when we do our event, everyone's going, oh, there was a shooting at the Rex, there was this, there was that. I think, for sake, I just want to put a rave on. You know, I'm going to have peace and quiet, you know what I mean? And And... You know, I was thinking, you know, and you know, when you hear something like that and there's actual signs up. So you imagine you're going to a rave to have a good time and there's signs going, shooting, you know, police inquiry, you know, phone this number if you've got any information. So people was queuing up going, oh, you know, and East London was moody then anyway. So to actually have that outside and we had the same thing at the island in Ilford the, the week before one of our events. Uh, I think it was Jungle Fever. There was an event on uh, the island in Ilford. And, um, you know, the, the, there was an event. Somebody got thrown out. He was mugging people. Um, he said, I'm going to come back and shoot you. And he came back with a gun. I think he, sh- he killed one of the doormen and he shot another one of them and wounded him, you know. And I said to all my doormen, I said, if anybody threatens to shoot us, we set the f-ing dogs on them. And if... If we don't set the dogs on, we grab hold of them, we make sure they can't go back to that car to get any guns. Because once someone threatens to kill you, mm. and because it's happened twice now, I said, we can't take any chances. You know, I don't want to be wandering outside a club and then someone goes bang because I just happened to be in the wrong, or one of my punters gets shot, you know. So I was, and, and I actually even phoned the police. I actually said, look, I'm a prolific promoter. I'm doing 20 events a month. Um, there's a massive issue, as you know, with gun crime. Um, and, you know, I'd like to pay for an armor response unit outside my events. I don't care what it costs, I'll pay. We don't do that service, sir. And I was like, so someone pulls a gun out, what do I do? Call 999. I said, well, it might be a bit late. But, but then in my, see, at the time, you know, I was like, you know, what do we do here, right? And and I and I think that's when the violence really did uh, escalate. And you know, back then, bear in mind there was no CCTV, and in places like Stratford and Brixton and Tottenham, there was people getting raped, mugged, murdered, stabbed, shot. Their houses burgled, their cars broken into. So if you're putting an event on. And 5,000 people are coming to, to that place or 3,000 or 2,000 or whatever it is. Obviously, you're bringing a load more aggravation into that borough for the police to cope with. And, you know, we ended up having to be like, you know, law enforcement. We had to enforce it ourselves. And one night, you know, one of the, I think he was an inspector turned up and uh, come out of the car and he said, uh, and he asked the doorman, he said, is the promoter here? And, uh, the guy said, oh, there's a police officer outside. I think he's an inspector. I think he wants to speak to you. So I went outside and he said, oh, you know, you the promoter? I went, yeah. So I've been watching you and your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and although we can't condone your behaviour, um, you know, you've actually saved us a lot of work because when you did an event here last month, we probably had six or 700 calls where people have been mugged, their cars have been broken into, uh, you know, their watch has been stolen, whatever, you know. So, um, so he said, you know, I, I you know, I don't, I can't say that I can, know, but he was basically saying thanks because mm. I think 
you know, they the police were getting sick of it as well. Mm. One of the things that really brings your book to life was the backstories of your doorman. The way you described, I was really gripped. Can you convey some of those stories to the viewers? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. Characters. The, yeah, it was characters. There's a guy called John John who um, was, uh, he was, he was about, he sounds about a little bit like your nutty mate. Wildman. Wildman, yeah, yeah. Uh, I only said Wild Bill then. <laughs> but Wildman, yeah, he was a big, big f***ing guy. And he used to bodyguard and look after a guy called Wolf Pine, who I don't know if you know Wolf. Um, but he was a, he was a, um, he was a crazed link to the mafia. He was allegedly the only made Englishman in the mafia. Um, he's dead now, but at the time he used to look after him and he said, to, said to me, look, you know, have him. He's a good guy. And it was actually quite funny because, um, when we did the Rex, there was a, there was a company called Mean Fiddler that owned it. And, uh, that they were an Irish organization and him and his mate were standing in the car park with balaclavas on because it was freezing cold. And the guy came in from the club and he went, you need to go with those guys, take the balaclavas off, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you can tell them, you know I mean? I'm not going to tell them. But, um, obviously that didn't go down very well, but, um, uh, but they, John, John was good fun. And Alex was his sort of, uh, partner and he was a well kickboxing champion so he was he was pretty good um there's another guy <clears throat> um called gary guna um he, he used to do a lot of the reggae events in stonebridge um and back then you know the, the, before the rave scene started that was where there was a lot of shootings and a lot of violence so to be to work as a doorman in those areas at that time you know he was highly respected um throughout london everyone knew who he was um and um you know, he used to have a, a newspaper <clears throat> and he used to have a scaffold pole in the newspaper with concrete in the middle. So if he, uh, if anybody upset him and he got the newspaper out, uh, you, you know, you didn't want to hear about that because that was, you know, that, that, that did shut up quite a few people. Um, but he, he become <laughs> quite well known for his newspaper antics. <laughs> can, can you remember any specific stories of him using the newspaper? Yeah. I mean, we was out. I remember we was outside the the Stratford Rex, and uh, these these guys. And what I, what happened because the queue was quite long, we'd always have air security patrolling the queue to make sure people weren't getting mugged. Everyone was queuing up just to protect everybody. And we had people at the train station, so when people come off a train, we'd escort them over just to make sure they didn't get messed around with. And uh, one night, you know, I was standing just on the corner uh, and then I saw these guys like walking up and down a queue and they were asking people if they had any spare tickets and then taking the tickets off them right and then he saw it and went over to him and said listen he said give the f***ing tickets back right and the guys turned around to him and started racially abusing him right and I was thinking oh my god why are you doing this you know what I mean you're doing it to the worst person in the world and, it, and normally he go Right, he just go and he didn't go, and I was thinking it's a bit weird. He's like standing there, tackling his abuse of this guy, and then he was standing there like, going, "Oh, really, really? Okay, yes, yes, I am. Yes, you're right. Yes, I am. I am. Yes, 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 yes. You're right. You're right." And then all of a sudden, it just <laughs> whack. And then he just—it it was literally quite funny. It was literally, you know, like when you see some of the samurai sword, and they go, what? 
it was like he just went and then and then put put the newspaper back in his pocket and walked off and these guys were just laying on the road. <laughs> and and then people saw that and everybody was a bit like don't do that and the thing is <clears throat> when people saw things like that they realised it's zero tolerance you know what I mean and you know one guy come up to the door at the Rex and threatened to kill everybody he's going to shoot everybody so the guy just got the dog out and he said if you don't off, I'm going to set this dog on you. And the guy said, set the dog on me then. And he went like that in his jacket, so the dog just done him. Because as soon as he went like that in his jacket, the dog's going. Um, but the dog's insured, right? And then the guy rings the police and says, they've set a dog on me. And, he's, and, and the police come and they go, you know, what happened? And he said, look, he said, I'm standing here. The guy's threatening to shoot people. There was like all the witnesses, all the doormen. And, and I brought the dog out and said, if you don't go, I'll let... And he said he put his hand in his jacket and I wasn't waiting for him to pull something out. So nothing happened. You know, the guy went to hospital, but that was the sort of crazy shit that went, went on in the club scene. And, uh, you know, because I was from a council estate and I was in my 20s, although it sounds extreme and crazy, I didn't really care because I, was, I wasn't... Uh, you know, I was from nothing. I lived in a council flat. So for me, if, you know, somebody has a fight or somebody does something, and obviously when, when I started to get something and I started to make money and I started to have a proper business, at that point I started fee- feeling a little bit like I had to, put, you know, the security were there to protect me, but they were there to protect the punters, right? They were to protect, to make sure my mum and my girlfriend was okay. Do you know what I mean? Because cause if you're paying me money to come to an event, I want you to come in and have a good night and go home and come to the next one. But if you get mugged or beaten up or your car gets broken into or you have a bad experience, you're going to come out and say, I'm not going back there. So then overnight your brand dies. So, you know, we did we did it for from 93 to 2003 for 10 years. We won all the best promoter awards for Garage Nation and One Nation. We were doing 20 to 30 events a month around the world. You know, we expanded this great business, but, you know, we had to, you know, not not when we was in Ibiza and Ionapa and places like that, but when we was in London or in Manchester, if we were doing big events, we did have to carry uh, our own sort of team with us because, and when I met my wife, um, you know, she came around my house, you know, on the day I was doing an event. And, you know, for me, this is just normality. So I had all duffel bags, bulletproof vests, all by the front door. And so when she, when she came in my house, she looked and looked at me. And then she was like, what's all that about? She probably thought I was an armed robber or something, right? And uh, I just said to her, I said, I said, oh, this is just how we have to go to work. And she said, so what, what, what do you actually do? And I said, I put on raves. And she's never been to a rave. She said, I've never been to a rave. I said, why don't you come tonight? And she went... Okay, I'll come. So she's gone out, she's turned up, and obviously she's not dressed to go to a rave, right? She's dressed to go to a club in Mayfair, right? So so she 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 started seeing all these guys turning up, and the dog van turns up with the dogs in the back. She's like going, who are these people? And I said, oh, he's exercise, he's parachute regiment, he's this, he's that. And she was like, you basically surround yourself with like these f***ing, like, it's, it's like you're going to work with like, serial killers <laughs> and some attack dogs and you're all wearing bulletproof vests so I think you need to find a fucking different, <laughs> different job and that's that's why mm. I come out of it and in the last year of putting events on um, I had a gun pulled out of me three times 
Um, Could you tell us those stories? It was just stupid, you know. It was it was like um, you know one one of the one 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 of them was uh, Stratford Rex. I mean, obviously, I talked to you about the one in Milton Keynes. That was obviously a serious one, right? Um, the next one was you know I was I was in uh, in the Rex and I come out of the Rex and we had this policy where everybody had to be searched. Nobody could be walked in, right? It doesn't matter who you are, you're being searched. And these three guys come up to the door and said, uh, we're with so-and-so, we're coming in. And it's like, mate, you're not coming in. If you're on a guest list, you can come in, but you'll be searched. If you're not on a guest list, you've got to f-ing pay, right? Well, you don't know who we are, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, blah, blah, And as I walked out, I've walked into all this stuff, right? So the guy's going on, and I'm going to do this. I'm like, I said, who are you talking to, you and he he turned out to me. I'm talking to you. I said, I said, I said, well, what, do you want to fucking do something about it? And he went, yeah, come around the back. I said, all right, let's go. So I'm walking around the back with two of my mates. And then my mate goes to me, he goes, Terry, he's pulled a fucking gun out. Right? And I couldn't see because it was dark. So I thought, you're just going to go around and have a fucking tear up. So he's pulled a fucking gun out on me. And then I'm like, oh, what, are you going to shoot me now? And he goes, yeah, I am. And I was going, all oh, right, because we won't let you, you're going to shoot me. And as I'm saying that, I'm walking backwards. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, that was that was quite... I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. You know, and then another time... Was 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 at the Coliseum where somebody pulled a gun out and was threatening to shoot people and 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 he got sort of disarmed and fucked off. But Christmas Day, right? We did an event Christmas Day night, the Ministry of Sound, which is a famous club in London for anyone who doesn't know it. And um, we actually had people turning up at the door saying, "Can you walk me in? I'm carrying." And we're like, "Absolutely not. You know, you're not bringing it in here." Well, I'm from North. If the guys from South, because at the time there was North, East, South, West, and they all wanted to kill each other. So you had all these crews and all these gangs, but they all wanted to come to my events. So it was like, we had to sort of be the sort of peacekeepers. So we were like, you know, if you've got a problem with them, sort it out another time. But if you're coming in there, you can't bring it, go and put it in the car. And we had this argument all night. There must have been 10 different people said the same thing. And I got to the point where I'm driving home, like Boxing Day morning, thinking in my head, 
I'm putting a, an event on Christmas Day night and put, I'm having to ask people to go and put their guns in the car. And I just thought, it's f- And then with, with the repetitiveness of people pulling guns out, people threatening to shoot people, and then people hearing about people getting shot and stabbed and all sorts of stuff, I, I just thought, I've got to get out of this plate because when I was go- go- first got into it, I didn't care. But I think as soon as you meet somebody that you want to be with, you have a kid... You know, you, um, you know, you you get a mortgage. You know, all of a sudden you've got something. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. But when you've actually got something, you 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 actually think to yourself, "Do I really want to be put, putting myself in a position where uh, people are going to um, potentially shoot me, kill me?" Um, and and you know, I was always paranoid that somebody would find out where I lived and think, "Oh, you know." Terry's going to have a load of cash because he's a promoter. Because back then, obviously, it was all cash. But I used to put every penny I earned in the bank. And people used to say to me, you're fucking You're paying tax on that. And I'm like, I don't give a f-. I said, I want to pay tax on it because I want to buy a car. I want to buy a house. I want to go on holiday. I want to buy a watch. I don't want to, I don't want to be laying in my, under my bed. I've got 200 grand. And then somebody comes in and takes it. Or the police come in and say, oh, where'd you get that from? And I'm like, I'm a rape promoter. And they're like, yeah, of course you are. Do you know what I mean? So for me, it was always put the cash in the bank. And back then, you occasionally got checks off people. Um, you might get a bank transfer, but it was cash because you you go to the venues, people would pay cash. There was no credit card machines. Um, you know, you go to a, a record shop that would sell your tickets. It was always cash. So for me, there was a lot of cash. But then I was always worried because because when we did an event, it was quite clever because we'd sell the tickets in advance. So there wouldn't really be any cash at the events. Mm. And people would always say, are you not worried that someone's going to rob your event? I said, but I don't care if they do because there's no money there anyway. <laughs> right? There was, and there's only the cash on the door. And we used that to pay the DJs. And then, yeah, that was it. So so really most of the money was sold through, through record shops and, and, and through advanced ticket sales. So there was never really any any large amounts of money to, to steal anyway. And so, so we never, but in the back of my head, I know there was a, a, a moment in the rave scene where as the DJ started earning more money, some of them were getting a thousand pound an hour and they were going out four or five times a night. And then obviously you get these street kids going, now EZ's out over the weekend, 10, 15 grand, right? And he sees out, you know, where these people live. Do you know what I mean? And then they've actually started, they actually started targeting the DJs. Mm-hmm. So they'd actually, and obviously, if you go around there at eight in the morning, they've been out DJing or they've asleep, come in the door and take, shake them down, and that that happened. Started happening to, to the DJs, you know, and and that was quite a scary time, you know. If you're a DJ, you know, you're just going out playing music, and I think a lot of the DJs then said, "Oh, can you give me a check?" Because I didn't want the cash. So there's a story in the book where you had to take to the streets to kind of shadow a mugger. I think it was in Brixton. Yeah, Do you remember no, it was, that? Uh, it might have been in Stratford, actually. Stratford, was it? Right. Why did you... How did that come about? When you say shadow the mugger... What, what, you were, like, pretending, you were, like, hiding, you were waiting to get the guy? No, no. So what happened was uh, we had... Uh, we, 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 so this was in Stratford, and what happened was we did... The first time we ever did a, an event in Stratford, um, we had so much trouble. Like, all the cars got broken into, people getting mugged left, right, and centre, with people inside mugging people. And and I was like, why can't we stop these you know what I mean and I actually remember driving home from the rave when I woke up Sunday I was so f- hungry right I actually drove back up to Stratford 
And I literally walked around Stratford on my own, looking around, thinking, where are these f***ers hiding? You know, where, how do they do this? And worked out where they were hiding, where they were running to, where they sort of, where all the little places where they could go um, and then jump out on people as they come from the station. So I thought, well, I've, I've not got enough security. So I just said, look, this is going to cost me money, but I don't care. For one night, I want 10 guys, 10 extra guys. I don't want them to come at work. I just want them to go around all night beating people up, right? And they were like, so you want us to bash people up? I went, yes. And I said, what I want you to do, I'm going to walk around Stratford. And I said, I don't want you to attack anybody, but I want you to wait and observe. And obviously a lot of these guys are military guys. So I said, I just want you to walk around and observe these and I said, when you see these people coming off a train, walking to a rave, you're going to see a group of them and you're going to see these characters, right? And when these characters come out, give us your money. I just want you to do them, right? So that's what happened. And they, you know, that night they probably beat up probably 40 people, but badly, not just macking them in the mouth, like bashing them up to the point where they were like probably unconscious. Um, but then, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's extreme. But if you've got people put, pulling knives out on you and you've got people mugging you for your shit, and that's the problem with the UK right now, you know, if you go down the road in Mayfair or in Knightsbridge and you've got a nice watch on and somebody sees it, you're going to get mugged. And they might ask you for it, they might just stab you and take it. But that has become normality, right? And for me, you know, back then, I, I wasn't having it, do you know what I mean? And the thing is, you know... The, the, what these people were doing was self-defense. They weren't just attacking people in the street. They were literally observing people. And as soon as they pulled a knife out, or as soon as they started saying, give me the watch, they walk up to me, what are you f***ing doing? They then turn around and go, do you want it? And they go, yes, please, have some of that. Because, I mean, you know, these people thrive on, I mean, they do an combat, right? So for them, they're not, they, they love this sh- <laughs> You know, you pull a knife out on me, I'm going to take it off you and stick up your ass. You know, it's that sort of mentality. So unfortunately, um, that was kind of how it was. And, you know, when I look back on those 10 years, I look back on it and I just think, you know, you know, I can't believe, um, you know, that that nothing bad really happened, you know. I mean, people would say, well, if people are coming to your raves, mugging people, stabbing, trying to stab people or pull guns at them, that is bad. But it never got, it never got bad where somebody actually did die or, or, or you know, anything bad happened. So, Did you leave out the story of your doorman who was the weapons guy? Oh, yeah, Warrior. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was nuts. I mean, I met him um, at the Roller Express, and uh, he um, he was just like a crazy character. And <laughs> I remember the first time I met him, and he would talk in riddles. So you'd speak to him, and he'd be like going, I can't even remember what he'd say, but he'd say some lot, and he'd quote text from the Bible. <laughs> so he'd be talking to him, and then he'd just start going on about, if you read Psalm 308 or 28 or whatever it is, it says this, the Lord is my shepherd. and always, He'd be like, right, okay. And he'd just walk off. And you think, what an odd character. And people go, he's, he's serious, you know what I mean? He's, he, he carries a samurai sword right he, down his back. And, and he always used to have this like backpack thing on. And I used to think, you know, does he really? Um, but he, he really did. Um, and uh, he was the, I don't know if he was the head doorman or if he was just the guy that was there to stop any, because people knew he was. So when you turn up, he was on the door and it was like, you know, don't f*** out of him because, you know, he's serious. 
Um, and and I, he was one of the guys that I said to, you know, when we do events, do you want to come do some work with us? And then he'd be, yeah, absolutely. And then, but but then, you know, the downside was you'd have to listen to his sort of poetry and his sort of Bible <laughs> quotes. But the upside was, you know, people knew he was. And if he's and what I te- what I did was I had a few sort of army boys um, that were special forces, and then I had a few people like that who people on the street knew. So you you knew when you turned up, you were like, you've got him, and you've got him, and you've got him. I don't know who these guys are, but they don't look particularly friendly. And you have got these fucking dogs, right? That just were like, that. you know, that, I mean, if you ever see a, a real attack dog, you don't want to go anywhere near it because it will just have you you know what I mean and this guy who had him you know he used to put his black suit on and he used to say when I put a black suit on do not come anywhere near me do not walk up to the dog do not pat the dog on the head because it will f-ing bite you so we was all like okay um, and one day one of the doormen walked past the dogs and didn't realise they were there and the dog like went literally missed him by that much and he was like now that dog keep the f-ing dog away but I think a lot of the stuff that we did was for show. A lot of it was a deterrent. You know, people walk up to a club and they see these characters on the door. They see the dogs. They see the venue security. The venue had a, their own, you know, they were normally like quite serious people because bear in mind back then, uh, there was no SIA licensing. You know, you didn't, you, you you know, if you had it, the more, the more, the worse that your criminal record is, the more chance you'd be asked to work on the door. But now, obviously you have to be licensed. You can't have a criminal record. So, um, to work on the door now, you have to be an upstanding member of the community. But back then, you know, they wanted, you know, people that had done time. They wanted people that could have a row. They wanted martial arts people. They wanted soldiers. They wanted, you know, tough guys. So a lot of the guys who worked, um, you know, on the door were like that. So, uh, so yeah, so one of the guys who worked for me, who, who uh, again, you know, he'd dip in and out, but he was called the animal, right? <laughs> And he was about six foot four, eight in stone. And uh, if you saw him, you'd know that he was somebody you wouldn't want to f*** around with. He just had that thing about him where you saw him and you'd be like, I'd, if I trod on his foot, I'd say sorry. And then I'd try and get away as quickly as possible. Um, but he used to work the doors in Plymouth. And his thing was beating up more Marines. He used to love it. He used to beat up four or five at a time. And he used to say, and I said to him, I said, uh, what was the best bit about working the doors in Plymouth? And these guys are like bashing up Marines. He goes, I've oh, done it. And he goes, if the special boat service coming, they got it and all. And he was just a lunatic, this guy. And I, I remember um, saying to my mate, you know, because he said, oh, he's he's now living in Kent. I said, do you want to see if he's available? Right? And he goes, Terry, he goes, if he works on the door and it goes off, he said, he is a liability. You know what I mean? You really don't want him. And and when we did Milton Keynes, <laughs> right, bear in mind, the last time we went to Milton Keynes, <sighs> we'd had all this aggro with this fucking people from Manchester. So we're going back again. And I went, do you know saying, let's bring the fucking animal out just in case these <laughs> yes. come back, right? So so he's on the door, right? And it, for whatever reason, it did go off, right? And what was funny- With which group? Well, I don't know, just another another group of another group. fellas. But they decided, right? So 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 what, what would happen is when you did these events- you did always have problems, right? So there'd always be a fight. There'd always be someone trying to come in. There'd always be someone trying to jump over the fence. There'd always be someone caught with drugs and they hand them over to the police or throw them out, whatever. So there was always something happening, right? If you got three or four or 5,000 people in a room, 
it's not going to go without incidents. There's always going to be something, right? So these guys, I think they were from Nottingham, right? Decided it'd be a really good idea to rush the door, right? So we're standing. Now, in Milton Keynes, there's this, like, I think it's called Herrera fencing. They're like metal fences. And they're temporary structures, right? But they stop people, obviously, coming in and out of things. So they have to, like, go round, right? So he he's standing looking. And he goes, Terry, I think we've got a problem. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, see them fellas over there? They're going to rush the door. And I went, yeah. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I'm not going to have it. So I'm going to do them all, right? And I was like, but they're on the other side of the fence. Because I'm going to get the fence and I'm going to do them with the fence. And I was like, what? And literally went up to the fence, picked this fucking fence up, right? And went like that with it. And then as he did it, they all fucking rushed forward and he just ran out and went, ah! He's just done them all with his fence, right? And then all these people like laying on the floor. And I was just, and then he's like, throws the fence down. He's like, ah! And I've literally said to my mate, I said, him, get rid of him. Do you know what I mean? He's lost the plot. But it was funny because because he just saw it. He, he must have had like some sort of sixth sense, but he was like, this is what they're going to do. I'm not going to let them. They're not coming in. I'm going to do them with a the fence. And then when he picked the fence up, I mean, this geezer, he was like superhuman strength. I mean, them fences are fucking heavy. Picked the old thing up and he just went, ah, and just done them with a the fence. <laughs> you know I mean? So it was a bit like Braveheart, you know, they're all running towards him. He just went, ah, with a fence. Um, so there was some, there was some funny, I mean, it probably wasn't funny at the time, but there was, there was some, there was some crazy, crazy times where, you know, things just happened and, uh, you know, he, he worked for us on on a, on a few 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 events, but for him, he wanted the action. You know, with us, we didn't want the action. We we if we had to have it, obviously we would have it, but we didn't want it. We wasn't. And with him, he fived on it. He wanted it. You know, if it didn't go off, he'd be upset. He'd go home. He'd go. I'm I'm done anyone tonight. So, uh, but if you if you know if anybody knows him by that and actually knows who he is, I won't say his name, but if they know who he is, they they will go. That guy is. He was proper. Do you know what I mean? He if, if he's watching, let's get you on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I like to get him on, on yeah. my podcast, but uh, yeah. I think the problem with uh, a lot of these characters is obviously back then, you know, whatever they've done, they've done. And I think a lot of them now are probably in their 50s and 60s and they've kind of done it. I mean, some of them are still working on the door, but um, uh, one of their guys um, uh, from South London, he was um, eighth Dan martial arts expert and again he was he was a feared guy right you see him on the door people didn't f- around with him and I've seen him do four or five geezers just like bop, 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 and you're all like running on the floor and you're like f***ing hell I'm going to come at your dojo right and uh, he he when I sold my business obviously a lot of the guys that worked for me they only worked for me really but what happened was people then started headhunting them ringing them up going oh do you want to come and run my door? Do you want to come and do this? Do you want to come and do that? And he actually went to the Vo- Coliseum in Vauxhall. And he was standing outside there one night. And I think this was 2004, 2005. So I sold up in 2003. So 2004, 2005, this happened. And he was standing outside. These two kids come up. They must have been 16, 17. And they walked up to the door. And he said, you need to stand over in the queue there, gentlemen. He's very polite. I said, who the f- think you're talking to? Going in, we're not being searched. So he's turned around at me and goes, You ain't coming in. And one of them just went like that and shot him eight times outside the thing. Luckily, he lived. But 
you know, that was our f- crazy. And that's really why I, I sold up because I got to the point where I've met, you know, the love of my life. I've, I've, she's having a baby, got a mortgage. I'm in a position now where I'm thinking I'm 30 years of age. Do I really want to be driving to work in a bulletproof vest, standing in nightclubs till six, seven in the morning, um, dealing with all these in low life that, that want to come in and cause trouble all the time? And, and, and also because of the, 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 the escalation of violence, what happened with a lot of the clubs and what happened with a lot of the local authorities and the police, they then wanted to know what events were on, who the promoter was, um, you know, what DJs are going to play. And if, you know, you had a reputation, I didn't, but for, for problems, you ain't putting an event on. If you had a certain DJ or a certain crew on, you're not booking them. We're not having it, right? So it got to the point where you was putting events on, but it was like painting by numbers. So it was like, I'm I'm creative, so I want to book these DJs, but you're telling me I can't because they're going to bring trouble. So, and obviously, if you're a club owner, you've got a license. You've got this fucking asset. So if there's a problem, you lose your license. You've got this expensive building you can't open. So what a lot of the uh, large venue owners done was they redeveloped the, the properties if they had the freeholds or they sold the properties on and they got redeveloped. So a lot of the uh, clubs, venues, all got redeveloped. If you look at Brixton Academy, that was one of their favourite venues. But obviously they had a problem with people rushing the door at that concert recently. Some people died. They you know, closed it. Do you know what I mean? And, and there was always the danger that would happen. There's a shooting, someone dies on drugs, it's shut down, right? And, and obviously there was a lack of venues there was a, you know, obviously the violence had increased massively and, and it didn't become fun. You know, when I started it, when I first went out in 1991, it was fun. It was no trouble. It was all one love, one vibe, one nation. Everyone wanted to be your mate. You'd never see a fight. And then I'd say 94, 95, the music changed. Um, you know, the jungle music come out. There's a few problems with that. Then the, there was a few shootings, a few stabbings. Then the garage scene come along. And when the garage scene started, again, everyone used to wear suits. All the girls would dress up. It was really nice. Everyone would be drinking champagne. It was class. And then what happened was the crews come along and then it become more of a street thing. So then it was like, we don't wear suits anymore. We don't dress up. We wear track suits. We wear trainers. We have a hoods up. We wear sunglasses. So then it become more of a, an estate thing. And then obviously... Other people, for, you know, that couldn't afford a suit and didn't want to drink champagne were going, and then it become like a free for all. And uh, you know, obviously, if you was in a crew from North London and you were a criminal in North London, you would follow that crew. And then if you was in East London, there was a crew, and they were performing, and you were a criminal, you follow them. So you had these crews of these guys that were, you know, you know, the, the they were like. Um, you know, musicians, DJs, MCs, singers, and then they've got this sort of criminal attorney following them. And then obviously you imagine you've got North, East, South and West, London, all turning up in one space. Mm-hmm. Then you've got some from Nottingham, some from Liverpool, some from Manchester. You've got some from Leeds, some from Leicester, and you've got this melting pot of fucking firms and it's just going to go off. Yeah. And, and and that really was, uh, when when that happened, you know, I mean, it was like walking around on eggshells. You know, Jeremy ba- Bad Boy Bailey, he was also one of my guys and he was a world kickboxing champion. And the thing about him was he was, you know, 10 stone, tiny guy, 
Like, you look at him, and I've seen so many people, like, you know, when he said to me, you need to leave, and they've gone, like, what are you going to do, mate? And I've seen him go, because obviously, you know, he can have it on a ridiculous scale. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I see a lot of people come and start with him. But again, you know, that the gap, when you go back to that period of time, you know, I mean, we've, we've had, we've had all, I mean, so many, so many things happened and, 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 and at the time when it happens, you kind of brush it under the carpet and you laugh about it like it's normal. But then when I come out of it and then I started obviously getting into acting and, and, and making films, when I look back on that, I just think what crazy 10 years of my life promoting these events. But do you think that was integral in Terry being in these hurry self-defense situations, channeling the spirit of Terry Turbo into <laughs> Tony Tucker? Because you're so, yeah. like, the scenes, the violent scenes, like, it gave me goosebumps watching your face. Right. Like, you really knew how to do it. Well, I've, I've obviously it, seen it a few times. That's what, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. Were you channeling? No, I'll be honest with you. If, think, if you didn't have those experiences, would you have been able to have been that realistic? You know something? When I grew up, right, I, at school, if you was an actor or you wanted to be an actor, that was not the thing to do, right? That was for all the weird people did acting, right? So yeah, you, weren't, you yeah. weren't cool if you did acting. So that all... And I think the problem with me when I grew up... Because my mum and dad split up and because I didn't have a, you know, a real, really good sort of male role model in my life and I got bullied at school because we didn't have any money and, you know, things were tough growing up. And I think because of that, I always wanted, uh, you know, to, to, to be liked, to be loved, whatever you want to say. And I think if somebody said, oh, don't do that because it's not cool, the weirdos do that, you went, well, I'm not doing that then because I, I don't want to be a weirdo. I don't want to be not people taking the piss at me. I want people to like me. So I think um, I think that, otherwise, if I'd have done it when I was younger, maybe I'd have got the bug then. But I'd always love movies. I've always loved entertainment. You know, I always loved music before I promoted. I've always loved movies before I acted and, and produced movies. And I think, um, I think, obviously, if you live... A life. If you talk to any actor, look at Ray Winston, right? Um, you know, he has been around proper gangsters. He's boxed. You know, he's been in that life, right? And he's been around it, right? But he's an actor, right? So when he plays these parts, it's easy for him because, you know, he's playing himself. He's an East London lad, but he knows how to handle himself because he boxed. He knows about all these characters because he's seen them and he's met them. And obviously, if you're an actor <clears throat> and I find this, and it's really weird, that Tony Tucker character, when you come out of jail in 2007, that's when that film came out. Yeah. And it become a cult film. And what I found crazy is if you fast forward to 2023, where we are now, um, you know, there's been six films. There's been a computer game. So if you want to be Tony Tucker, you can actually play me or Pat Tate or Craig Rolfe and go around beating people up if that's your thing on your, on your iPhone or your Android phone, whatever. If you just said to me in 2006 when we're making that film, this is going to change your life. <laughs> You're going to have all these films and this, this computer game out. And I'd have probably looked at you and I'd have probably laughed and gone, I don't think so. I think it'd do all right. But it became a phenomenon. And what happened was it got released in America and through Lionsgate and 
a lot of, you know, I can go and, and it's gone out in Germany, it's gone out in Australia, New Zealand, Holland, um, you know, France, Italy, it's gone out everywhere. I go out now and people come up to me in the street and go, you know, it's Tony Tucker that and all that. And some people actually think I am like that and they go, oh, I want to go out and get on it and we get some birds. And I'm like, mate, I'll go to bed at 12 o'clock. Yeah. I'm probably the most boring in the world right now if you just spoke to me 15 20 years no 20 25 years ago i'd have been like let's go to a rave yeah let's go out but now it's sort of like you know but but it's it's what what i love about it is it's enabled me to connect with people that i wouldn't normally connect with and that's also one of the reasons why i've i've got into your game podcasting because when when i look at entertainment um, you know, I always think um, if you can have a laugh with people and you can talk about things that people don't normally talk about, and, and, and that's what I love about your podcast, Sean, is that you brought people on that people don't know anything about and you've given people access to stories they might have read about or heard about, but they haven't actually met the real people, seen the real people and heard the real stories. And, and I think that is why I think podcasts have become so popular and and. I think, you know, um, obviously we've only just started doing airs, um, but, you know, I think watching what you've done and all the other people that have, have, have I don't like to say they've made it in the podcast world because I think anybody who's got any, whether they've got a thousand followers or a million followers, anybody that can actually take time to create content, whether it's a film, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a short film, I always applaud them because I actually think you've got off your ass and you've done something, you've had a go. And I think the the key to any success, whether it's putting on events, making movies, doing a podcast, acting, whatever, hosting, you just got to keep doing it. And, and, you know, you find you find your niche and uh, people, are, and for everyone who loves you, they're probably the same amount of people who hate you. So. <laughs> <laughs> What got you into the foot soldier in the first place? What's the backstory? Um, so I was in a so my, so how I got into movies. It's, it's mad. I, I Dave Courtney again. I was making a film called Hell to Pay, and he um, said to me, he said, "I'll tell I'm making this film. Uh, do you want to have a little part in it?" And I went, "Yeah, all right. Why not? You know, it'd be a laugh. I'm not doing anything. I sell my business. I'm fucking, you know." I'm on the dull, basically. I need a job, yeah. So I've gone on this film set, and uh, it was a low-budget film, and uh, my first scene was with Jeremy Bad Boy Bailey, right? And uh, obviously, I knew him from from back in the day, and what was funny was um, I walked in, and uh, the, the director goes, I'll oh, stand over there. So I'm standing over there, filming the scene. Uh, a couple of hours go past. I was like, you know, am I actually going to do anything? And they went, well, yeah, you stand over there. I said, mate, I said, I haven't f-ing driven it to stand over there like a f-ing div. I said, I want to say something. He goes, what do you want to say? And I said, I don't know, give me some lines. And he goes, all right, we'll do an improvisation. He said, sit here and take the piss out of this guy, right? So I sit there and just took the piss out of him, like roasted him for about 10 minutes, right? And you could see him getting more and more annoyed, right? Because we're being filmed. And at the end of it, the director's laughing. He goes, now he goes, I'm going to keep that in the film. And the other guy goes, Jim's saying, nobody's ever spoke to me. <laughs> and I was just acting, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but then the director started going, oh, we get Terry and this, we get Terry and that. So I only had probably five scenes in the film. But what, what it did was it, 
connected with Scott Welsh, who's just been in Snatch, Andy Beckwith, who's just been in Snatch, Martin um, Hancock, who was a spider in Coronation Street, Billy Murray, who was in the bill for years. So I got talking to these other actors and, and I was sort of like, I've actually enjoyed this. I wouldn't mind having a go. And they said, I said, what do you do to be an actor? And he said, well, you've done your first part. Get the scenes, get your show reel, um, get some pictures done, get an agent, and you're an actor. I was like, oh. So I've gone home and said to my wife, oh, yeah, I'll be an actor now. And she's sort of sp- <laughs> eight months pregnant, sort of spam all teasers out. And she was like, <laughs> she said, are you on drugs? And I was like, no. And she goes, go and look in the mirror. She said, you're not f***ing Brad Pitt. And I was like, thanks, babe. You know what I mean? So then I've, I've come back um, and I thought, f*** it, I'm doing it, right? So I've got the pictures done, got the agent, then I've got a part in EastEnders, um, terrorising Alfie Moon, um, which was quite fun, and uh, trying to chase Ian Bill. And I, I said to him, I said, oh, you're never going to f***ing get away, mate. I will, f- I will go with you. And, and he's a f***ing like, marathon runner or saint, so I could never catch a little f***ing, right? And I, and I said to him, I said, you're so f***ing quick. He goes, mate, he goes, I do half marathons, marathons. He goes, I ride bikes. He said, I'm like super fit. And I was like, you f***er. Um, but um, uh, after that, you know, I did a bit of fear. I did the bill. I was just like bumming around. And, and I, I remember looking at what I'd earned in my first year of being a thespian. Um, and I'd earned eight grand. And I was like, I made a fucking massive mistake here. My wife is right as per usual. Um, you know, I'm going to have to find a fucking something else to do. Then I started thinking, should I go back into the club? Should I try and buy back the brands I sold? And then I was with a mate of mine. And he said, you know, you should make a movie. And I was like... It's a good idea. I said, would you put some money in? He went, yeah, I'll put some money in. I said, well, I'll put some money in. So I left that meeting thinking, well, I've got me and my mate, we're going to put some money in. So I rang all my mates and said, for a laugh, let's all put some money in and make a movie. So we raised the money for this film called One Man and His Dog. And the film was a dog, right? But we made it. We still got a bit of our money back. We lost money on the film, but it was literally going to film school, learn how to do it. Um, and then through that film, I met uh, two guys called Julian and William Gilby, who were writers, directors, hot up and coming. You know, they they were really passionate about everything. And they said, look, you know, we really want to work with you. We're going to cast you in this film. We love you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, great, fantastic. And I've read some stuff they'd done. I thought, these guys are talented. And then uh, I have, I have a friend of mine who I knew from a club scene back in the day, um, who I was friends with, um, phoned me. I said, are you in the f- film business now? And I went, yeah. I said, you know, I've, you know, done that film. He went, I've seen it. He said, uh, he said, I want to do a film. He said, now I know you can do it. Right. He said, how much was that film? And I told him, and he went, it looked a lot more expensive than what you said. And I said, well, you know, I said, we made it on a low budget, but I said, that's only because that's all we had. And he said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't we do a British Boys in the Hood? I went, and he says, well, we know all the boys. He goes, we know Kano, we know Miss Dynamite, we know Estelle. We know literally everybody from that scene. Dizzy Rascal, they were all our pals. You know, they all started off with us, right? So they went, he went, we'll get them all in the film, <clears throat> get some proper actors in it as well. I think Jason Fleming was in it, um, Vass Blackwood, Robbie G, myself, um, a whole host of other, Billy Murray. There was a load, load of people in it. And um, it was called Rolling With The Nines. And that film, BAFTA nominated, One Rain Dance, that really was the sort of catalyst for, oh my God, you know, Terry's actually doing proper movies now, 
right? And that was a, still a low-budget film. But then in between One Man and His Dog and Rolling With The Nines, I went to, to, to Ascot races. And I always used to go to Ascot races with my wife. And um, there used to be this lovely little Italian in the high street called Chow Nineties. He's not there now. But we'd always go to the races. And then on the way back, we'd go in there. And they used to do these amazing prawns and amazing lobster pasta. So it was like, we've been to the races, we're having the prawns, the lobster pasta, bottle of wine, then we're going to go home. And we turn up and uh, Carlton Leach is on the door. And he goes... Uh, so I'll tell, you know, you're in the film business now, you know, blah, blah, uh, you, sh- you, sh- you should do, turn my book into a film. And I was a bit like, everyone, I've, and because, once you know, people know you're in a film business, everybody's got a story. Everyone wants you to make their film. Everyone's got the best book, the best is the best that. And I said, well, you know, get us a copy of your book and I'll read it. And he gave me a copy of the book and it was called Muscle and it had a picture of him on the front. And I looked at it and I just thought, who's going to want to fucking watch a film about a doorman? But I thought, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Read it and see what happens. So read the book and uh, the book was about Carlton being in the ICF, uh, Carlton um, meeting Tony Tucker and Pat Tate and Craig Rolfe and, you know, we're looking after Nigel Ben. right? So I thought, you know, it's a good, good book. It reminded me, if you'd have said to me, pitch me this story, I'd have said it's Football Factory meets Goodfellas, right? So I said to him, I said, look, so I've read the book, we're watching the book, I'll put the money up to get the writers, and I was thinking in my head, we'll get Julian and William Gilby, blah, 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 so we did it, he spent some time with them, long story short, we got a bit of money, we went around, trying to raise the money for it, two years, kept falling over, got a bit of money, yeah, I'll fund this, I'll fund that, then the money didn't come through, and it didn't happen, and and, and, and I've started to get off and I was thinking everybody I ask about this film Rise of the Foot Soldier everyone's like oh you know maybe it should be a TV series oh well it's not really a football looking film it's more of a gangster film but it's like two films in one blah 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 and I went round and round and round and round for two years banging my head against the wall and then one day somebody said and I can't remember who it was but they said there's some fellas over in Essex um, who are massive West Ham fans and they will love it because of the West Ham connection, right? So I went, okay, well, you know, let's have a meeting with them. So I met them out of them, sent them a script. They love the script. They went, you know, who's going to play the parts? And we said, well, at the minute, we got Pat Tate, Craig Febos, me, Tony Tucker, Ronald Manuki and Craig Rolfe. We haven't cast, you know, can't one yet. But that's basically it, Julian William Gilby. And at the time, <clears throat> Roland the Nines had come out. So obviously it won the awards, it got nominated for BAFTA. They saw it and they went, how much do you make that film for? And when we told them, they were like, f***ing hell, these guys are talented. You know, we want to do this film, right? So I was like, f***ing great. So they, the, deal, the deal we had with them was, you know, we want the rights. And, you know, I think they did a deal with Carlton where they paid him, I think it was 10 grand, right, for, for the rights. So everybody got paid, the film got made, um, you know, I thought it, there was something special about that film, right? But with all these films that I've made, every time I make a film, I think it's special. Otherwise, I wouldn't make it, right? And sometimes they're fucking great. Sometimes they're mediocre. Sometimes they're not, right? But that's the, I think, the excitement of making a film. It's like when you do a podcast, you interview a guest and you think this person's going to fucking blow up and they, they don't for whatever reason. Then somebody else blows up and you get 100,000, 500,000 hits and you go, 
I didn't see that coming. So it's the same with film. It's just like if if everybody knew what the formula was, where you hit it every time, we'd all be doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that the film come out, it was a success. Um, and then, you know, uh, Carlton did some tours off the back of it. Um, and then uh, he thought, well, you know, it's been a success. I'm going to go off and do Rise of the Foot Soldier 2 on my own. Even though he's, these guys have funded the film and it's, and we've, I've had to give them all my rights. Everybody's had to give the rights. Now, in hindsight, I shouldn't have done that because if I'd have kept the rights, obviously I'd have had all of this money from all of these things, right? But then on the flip side, it might have just been one film. So, so now he's got crystal ball. So I went into the deal saying, I don't care if you have the rights. I just want this film made. I want to play Sonny Tucker. And if it makes money, great. If you'd never make another film again, great. If you make 10 films, I don't care because I just wanted to make this film. And if, if, if anybody has run around after putting their hard-earned cash into developing an idea, it's like you've got planning on the house, right? You put all the money into it and you're waiting for the planning, you're waiting for the planning. When you get the planning, you're like, yes, I've got the planning. So getting that film off, they could have bent me over the table and said, we're going to fucking take your pants down and we're going to take your fucking bag, your watch, whatever, to make the film. And I've gone, fucking, whatever you want, just take it. I just want to make the film. And and that was the, the, the thing. But it's like buyer's remorse. So what happened with Carlton was he obviously thought, uh, oh, I sold my rights too cheap. I shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. I'm doing my own thing now, f*** these people. And obviously you can't do that when you've signed a contract and you've signed legal agreements. So he went off and done a film called Reign of the General uh, with about his, what Carlton Leach did next with all the same actors that were in the other one. But, but but you know, he went off and did it. And then obviously the people that own the rights, which were Carnery, they saw what he did and they let him make the film and then they took it off him and said, you're not f***ing doing this, right? So then they all had a big fallout. And then, you know, for probably the last, I don't know, five or six years, He's obviously been on, on, online and he's obviously been moaning about, you know, the families not getting their share, moaning about, you know, just basically just trolling the film. And, and it's sort of it's sad, really, because, um, you know, he, you know, if you do a deal with somebody, you can't go back to them and go, that deal I did wasn't very good. So I, I need to change it all now. And, uh, you know, I think because they took the film off him, and basically said I was going to sue him. I think, I think, you know, even though it's nothing to do with me, I think it, 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 because I, you know, got the film done and I introduced him, it was somehow my fault. And then obviously he's like, you, you know, you're, I don't know, 45 year old man playing my mate with a silly wig on and all this. And he got very upset about it online. And, and you sort of think, mate, it's, you know, if you were that worried about the families, you'd have said in the beginning, we need to make a provision for the families or we're all going to donate some of their fees to the families. But that wasn't even, it was no interest to the families. You know what I mean? So it was all a little bit silly, really. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, he's, 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 he's had opportunities to be involved in the other films because they reach out to him and say, oh, Carlton, you know, why don't you come back in one of the films? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And he's, and because he's said all this stuff, very hard for him to then pop up in it or Ricky Arnett pop up in it and, and, and we're all mates, right? Um, which is silly, really, because if if he was sensible about it, you know, every time his character does appear in Rise of the Foot Soldier or there's a story about Carlton in Rise of the Foot Soldier, 
Um, that means more people are going to buy his book. More people are going to go, oh, Carlton Leach. So he's sort of like shooting himself in the foot, which I've never understood. That is a shame because the guy who introduced me to it, Hammy, shout out to Hammy, Wildman's cousin, he's a huge fan of yours and a huge fan of Carlton as well. Yeah. And um, like you said earlier on, you know, about success and everyone being successful together. It's a shame that situations end up like this. Would love to get Carlton on to give um, his story at some point. And how did it change your life then? Um, I th I think, um, uh, again, you know, I think with, uh, I think it changed my life because I think as an actor, you know, uh, you know, you want to work and there's lots of actors who will work and do, you know, a little bit of this, an episode of that, a bit of theatre, an advert, they won't work, then they do a little, you know, and it's like stopping and starting. So for me, you know, if I die tomorrow, if I don't ever act again, right, I've played an iconic role <laughs> in an iconic movie that everybody knows, and in 20 years' time, they're still going to know. So for me, I've achieved, look, most actors, if you said, what do you want to be? I want to be Tom Cruise. I want to be Brad Pitt. I want to be in Hollywood. I want to be an Oscar winner. You know, for me, that'd be amazing. But I don't actually care whether it does happen or not because I've played an iconic character. People know who I am. I've made a lot of films. But again, you know, some of the films I've made, people love. Some of them, they don't, right? So you can't please everybody all of the time. But when I look back over my 20-year career, I was 10 years in the, in, in the um, you know, the, the, the club scene, 20 years in the acting and the producing game, you know, I've now started obviously doing the Criminal Connection podcast, which, you know, was, was obviously inspired by seeing, seeing all the great work you've done, Sean. Cheers. And, um, you know, I just thought, you know, I've never done this before. I'll give it a go. And, uh, you know, for me, what's good about having a podcast is that I can showcase the things that I want to make. So the characters I want to make films about, things I want to do stories about, I can obviously showcase them via the podcast. So for me, it becomes another uh, way of making people aware of what I'm doing as a filmmaker, as a content creator. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed doing it. And uh, again, I think when you start off on any journey, whether you want to do a podcast, whether you want to be an actor, whether you want to make films, whatever you want to do, I actually think, you know, you, you do it and you, you, you know, you never know, uh, where it's going to go. And I think that's kind of exciting, but I'm still acting. I'm still producing. I'm still doing everything that I've always been doing. Um, but you know, I, th I think, um, air business has changed massively since COVID because obviously COVID everything got shut down. We still managed to make some films, but obviously all the prices went up. Um, and, and, and the challenges went up because you had to test upon for COVID. Uh, you, you know, you were limited on where you could film, what you couldn't film. Um, and you know, we've, we've now come out of COVID. We've gone back to some sort of normality. And now, you know, there's the war in Ukraine. There's stuff happening in Israel. There's the writer strike. There's the actor strike. And it's just like, you know, there's, and there's all these people that don't want to work. There's all these people that want to work from home. And it does feel like it's an odd, um, uh, it's an odd, I feel like the world at the moment's a kind of weird place. And uh, I'm sort of looking at things and I'm sort of thinking, I don't know how things are going to play out and what how things are going to unfold. Um, but what I do know is that people like content. People like to listen, watch, 
learn. So I think if you're creating something you can share with people, I think you're always going to be employed. I know what our, <laughs> I know what our viewers would like. Sorry, I definitely know what we I can't do. You know what we can't do? You know what we can't do? What? AI cannot replace Sean Atwood or Terry Stone. They can try, but it won't be as good as us. Our, <laughs> our viewers, I'm convinced, would like a what? sample. Are you okay to give a sample? Sample what? So I'll be the guy who gives you the cigarette and says, burn him, burn him. And then you <laughs> lean over with the cigarette and do the face. Can we do that? Can we do it? Yeah. And that's that's the cigarette, is it? We've got to improvise. Okay, now this is dark. <laughs> You're putting me putting it on me now. It's <laughs> gonna be the best bit. <laughs> right? Okay. Good. We're good. Yeah, we're good. Alright, <clears throat> I gotta psych myself up. Burn him, Tony, burn him, Tony. Burn him, Tony, burn him, Tony, burn him, Tony. <laughs> 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 you put a bit too much tobacco in there, Sean. <laughs> Is that a vape? Is that a vape? It's one of your vapes. <laughs> um, oh, but do you know what? Uh, do, doing all, uh, the, you know, the, the Foot Soldier films have obviously got a massive uh, place in my heart. Um, and when I, when people say about change your life, I think what it's done is, it's um, what I love is I love meeting people that I don't know mm. that watch all the films and they've grown up on it. And the amount of people that send me like videos or pictures of people dressed up as Tony Tucker or people that have gone, oh, can you send me a video calling me a <laughs> sort of stuff? And you just sort of think, you know, why do you want to video me calling you a what? Why? Do you know what I mean? It's just that was, that was my next request. <laughs> I, no, any, anytime, Sean, for you, anything, anything. Do <laughs> I'll you, even put the wig on for you. That's a... <laughs> Do you ever contemplate what? Grind my hair and dye it blonde? No. <laughs> Do you ever contemplate how those guys actually met the end? Do you know something? Um, what's interesting is you know I've I've I spoke to lots of people. And, and you know, look, there's loads of people who say, uh, Carlton wasn't really close to him. Carlton was really close to him. Uh, you know, uh, Pat Tate was, you know, not really around him all the time. Uh, Bernie was, Bernie wasn't. I mean, you know, there's so many conflicting stories about who was really there, who really did this, who really did that. I think the reality is this, right? Um, everybody, right? wants to embellish their story. Everybody wants to say, oh, I was their best friends. I knew them better than anybody. I was, you know, and, and I think whatever happens, even if in a year's time, they say, these are the people that killed them in the Range Rover. You know, I mean, you had, uh, Nipparelli say his dead dad did it, right? And he confessed to it on his deathbed. Um, you've had Jack Williams and Mickey Steele saying that they're innocent throughout, you know, and you sort of think, well, Hey, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays, and it is the season of giving. Get the perfect gift for that special somebody, yourself or both. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarized shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And Jen's... Blonde locks aren't getting tangled. 
in the tangle-free nose piece, so I can put it up in my hair like this. <laughs> no catching. With an extensive array of styles and colours, you're bound to find the perfect pair of shady rays sunglasses. And if you're into winter sports, their quick-swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low-light environments. That's not all. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out a very merry deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code SHAUN for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. That's ShadyRays.com, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off or two more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Link in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Even if you were innocent, right, when you've had all your appeals and you know that you're not going to come out of jail, you might as well just put your hands up. Like you said earlier, when you got offered that deal... If you can have the nine and a half years now, or you can have in fifty years, what do you want? You're going to take nine and a half years, right? So some people, if they're innocent, they're they're not going to bow down. They're going to do the time. There exactly. are those people out there, even though if they can get out the next day, I've seen it. Yeah, but but yeah. but but for, for for me, I would just think, you know what? I can sit in here for another eight years. Why well, don't just come out? Do you know what? Fuck it, I did it. Linda, Let me out. Linda Calvi, right. she did it. She did the extra time. But but yeah. but, the, but the thing is, um, you know, uh, I've spoken to law enforcement. I've spoken to all sorts of people, and whatever anybody says, there was an issue between McSteel and Jack Wombs, um, and you know Pat Tate and Tanner Tucker. There was an issue, and you know Mickey Steel was well known for bringing in drugs on his plane. And, you know, there is a well-known story that they did some sort of deal and it didn't, whatever they sold them wasn't right. And then, I don't know if it was Pat or Tony or somebody was going around saying, we're going to kill you, we're going to iron you out if you don't give us the money. So I think, essentially, when that happened, you know, they're in a a place where, you know, if you've got the, and they were lunatics, they were running around beating people up. Craig Ralph injected that guy and killed him i mean they, they were off key they weren't you know i mean you know look which means way, a lot of people could potentially the, the way, have done the way it they behaved, they pissed off so many people the way they behaved right you know nipper ellis who said he's dead he shot pat tate right he actually shot him right to that thing in rise of the foot soldier the first one where I think it's called Jimmy Gerenuk. I think that was maybe loosely based on what happened. But in real life, Nipper Ellis shot Pat Tate through the window. And he wasn't shooting him to maim him. He was shooting him to kill him, right? So you think that was just somebody who he'd had a disagreement with. So you think how many people they've beaten up, terrorised. It could have been 100 people that would... And, and people probably did want him dead, right? But but the reality is, um, you know, when you actually look at... The, the police reports and the rest of it, they've said that they've... And bear in mind, now they can actually triangulate your phone to where you're sitting. Back then, it was within a certain radius. So they could say, well, uh, you know, uh, the Essex boys were killed there and Mickey Still and Jack Wham's phones were in the area. But they can't put them at the thing. There was no DNA. Uh, they didn't recover the shotgun. They didn't recover the fucking bullets. Uh, obviously, when when they arrest, when the police arrest anybody, 
they can actually get, you know, they can do whatever the DNA is and they know if you've fired a firearm because you'll have the gun powder residue on you, uh, there'll be fibres, you know. So the fact that there was no DNA doesn't mean they're innocent, right? But it also doesn't mean they're guilty. But the thing is, no DNA and, you know, they were in the area. When they got arrested, apparently... Um, they pretended they didn't know where Rettendon was. But then when they went back to him and said, well, you know, your phone's near Rettendon. And they went, oh, yeah, I was picking up a car. So it was like, you know, and I think the problem is if you are interviewed by the police and you say something, oh, I don't know where it is. And then you go, oh, well, actually, no, I do know. I was picking up a car. It's like, well, do you know where it is or not, mate? Do you know what I mean? So I, th I think that didn't help them. Um and look, there's nobody else has been arrested for it. Loads of people have been questioned. Loads of people have been interviewed. There's been loads of suspects, but they are the only people who've actually been accused of it, have been convicted of it, and gone to jail for it. So, for me, um, you know, I've I've spoken to uh, uh, John Wyams, and John Wyams has said, you know, his brother's innocent. I didn't do it, and the truth is going to come out, right? So. They're obviously campaigning for justice. There was recently a program on Sky where uh, I think there was two. There was one about the Essex boys that had Carlton and Dave Courtney and everybody talking about it. Um, and then I think there was another one which these police guys said, let's try and find out. Let's go through it all again. Let's see if it's right. You know, and they, and they all come up. You know, there was a theory that a professional hitman did it from East London. There was a theory that maybe Nipperellis' dead dad did it. There was all these other theories, but again, they didn't really lead anywhere. So again, that's what makes the Essex boys and, and these stories. I mean, there's been 20 or 30 books, 20 or 30 films, and they're going to keep going because it's like, it's never going to be solved. You know, all the time, if Jack Williams and Mickey Still said, we did it, people go, oh, we know we did it now. So there's no mystery. There's no conspiracy theory. There's no... There's no, I wonder what happened, you know. But I think because the only people who know what happened were in that Range Rover, mm. that's what makes it compelling because everybody wishes they could just be there and say, fucking tell us who did it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, nobody, nobody's ever going to know. Yeah, we interviewed the next cop who's based in Essex, Andy Coombs, uh, recently, and he said it, he thought it looked like a professional hit. That's what he said. Well, but there was no, but there, is no, there was no DNA. There was no cartridges. There was no... There was no gun recovered. So whoever did it knew what they was doing. Mm. And, and you know, if Jack Williams and Mickey still had done it, well, they, they, they must, they, they're not that f***ing clever that they can shoot a gun, get rid of the stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't know how quickly they were arrested after the incident. Mm. Um, but Darren Nichols, who obviously was, you know, they called him the supergrass, but, you know, he said he was there. He said, this is what happened. And, uh, you know, some people said, well, you know, he said that to get out of it because he was implicated in it. Some people said, you know, he did it because he was a grass. Some people said he did it because the police wanted to fit him up. I mean, who knows? But the way I look at it, um, you know, um, you know, I've, I mean, I, I, I just find it hard to believe. I, I know people will say anything to get themselves out of a problem, but... Just having somebody just making up a load of books to get themselves out of trouble, and and the police, I don't, I just don't, I just can't get my head around why the police would um, put 
two innocent men in jail for, you know, 20 years or however long it is, unless they thought it was them. Do you know what I mean? And 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 if there was well, any any uh, shadow of doubt, if there was any new evidence that come to light, they would have been released sooner, I would have thought. But, so, you know. So in your book, you talk about the tragic death of Leah Betts and how that created a kind of a backlash. Yeah. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the the problem with uh, uh, that particular thing, um, you know, uh, 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 the, the, it was a club that was controlled by the Essex boys. Um, you know, Ben Mahoney was on the door there. Uh, apparently, uh, you know, it was the Essex boys' drugs that you, she 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 consumed that killed her. Um, and I think at that point, there was a lot of stuff in the papers about people dying on ecstasy. And, you know, people worried about people taking these, you know, XC tablets and blah, blah, blah. But I think that was a turning point because I think when when she died, because she died so tragically and because her father was a police officer, I think um, the whole world were like, oh, my God, you know. And then obviously when they started, you know, it was like we need to get we got to stop these drug dealers peddling this shit. You know, and for me, it's sort of like, you know, and, and you know, I always thought, you know, if, you know, they always talk about the war on drugs, right? They've never won the war on drugs yet because you can f-ing buy drugs anywhere, right? So you sort of think, well, you, you've not stopped it. You haven't won the war on it. You arrest people every now and again and put them in jail, but you don't actually stop it because the next person comes along and then somebody else comes along. So for me, it's like, you know, if I was in government, I would say, you know, we're not winning the war on drugs. We've been trying to do it for 30 years or 40 years, however long it is. Let's legalise it. Let's make, tax it. And let's make sure that, um, you know, people can actually buy it and it's and it's safe. safe. Right? And and people, you'd have to, like, if you um, was going to have some sort of treatment, right, at the doctor, um, or you was going to take something, they would actually test your body. And they'd say to you, you can't take this because it's going to fucking kill you. Right, you know, people, you know, are told they need an operation, and they're told if you have this operation, you could die. A lot of people say, "I'm not having that operation." So it's the same with drugs. If if you could be tested and say, "Look, I want to take this, but I want to make sure that it's going to be okay," they can say, "Well, we don't think you should take it, but if you take it in these quantities and it's, yeah, we've tested it, then at least you know what you're taking has been tested and it's controlled, and obviously you can monitor what people are taking. So people aren't going to go out and take." in 10 and dive an overdose because they're not going to be out by 10 you know what i mean so i think i think at that point i was thinking you know the only way to solve this is is and, and obviously the police you know when when uh i think the reason it was such a big news story was because because it was a, a young girl on her 18th birthday and her father's a police she comes from an, a great family and, and that's happened so i you know my, my sort of heart went out to um her family um, but it did. It was a massive impact on the club scene. I think the police really did step it up. They really did want to stop it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they were, listen, if you were doing anything in that world at that point, there was a good chance that they was going to come for you and nick you, you know. So um, I'm sure a lot of drug dealers got arrested. I'm sure a lot of um, the police focused on taking them off the streets and arresting these people. Along those lines, then, do you think that the police could have took some elements of the police could have took matters into their own hand to eliminate the Essex boys? No, no. I mean, I mean, look, the, when we did uh, Rise of the Foot, so there was three conspiracy theories. There was Jack and, uh, and Mickey did it. 
the police did it uh, or these gangsters did it, you know, which one was the real ending, you know. And it was just done to cause controversy. It wasn't done because that's what we thought happened. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, it's an easy conspiracy theory, you know. You know, you've, you've, you've taken his daughter away, so, you know, they're going to come for you and they're going to take you away. But, you know, I, I'm sure, um, you know, the police and, you know, the army, um, you know, in countries all around the world, um, will will take matters into their own hands, uh, as would the government. If somebody was being a f***ing nuisance, I'm sure they would either put them in jail for a very long time or maybe they will have an accident. But I don't think, uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, if they had done it, you know, um, I think they would have just done it. I don't think Mickey Steele and Jack Wams would have been in the area uh, I think they would have just been killed and you'd have been like, it'd be who done it. You'd never know. Do you know what I mean? And that would have made it even more interesting because then people would go, well, who killed the Essex boys? They're, that would have been an ongoing thing forever. But, um, you know, so I'd, I I personally don't think there's any merit in that thing. Um, some people will disagree. Some people will say, oh, they definitely did it. But I don't think they did. Terry, let's finish this podcast showing respect for Dave Courtney. Yeah. R.I.P. Dave. He was friends to both of us. You got to have a funny Dave Courtney story. Got hundreds, but um, <laughs> but what the one that, uh, that that stood out the most was um, when I we told you that story earlier about Manchester and the G Mix, right? I went up there in a minibus, um, and there was me, there's guy called Adam Saint, uh, there was Brendan, there was Dave Courtney, there was uh, I, there was about twenty of us on this minibus, and we went up to Manchester. And we had this real laugh, and uh, uh, the, 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 I don't know why, right? But we we all got talking, um, and we were having a laugh about EastEnders, and there was a there was a storyline where do you remember the hairdresser Felix? So so there was a guy called Felix the hairdresser, and uh, something happened to him where he went missing in the show, right? And and obviously Steve McFadden, who plays Phil Mitchell, was a really good friend of Dave Courtney, so. Um, we, 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 we thought it'd be really funny, right? To, to as we drive in Manchester, to pull over in this minibus and I, just random people. So you haven't seen Felix, have you? <laughs> right, and they'd be like, Felix, yeah, Felix, the hairdresser. You know, we're looking for him. We think Phil Mitchell's had him away, right? And the, the guy's are like, what? what are you on about? Right. And all night we was in this rave going out of people going, you haven't seen Felix, have you? And it was just, it was just stupid. <laughs> if you'd have been with us, you'd have found it hilarious, right? <laughs> but we thought it was really funny. And then, uh, my birthday's in January, and I had a birthday party, and uh, Dave bought Felix the hairdresser <laughs> from EastEnders <laughs> and Steve McFadden <laughs> uh, to my birthday party, and, uh, you know, it was just f***ing hilarious, and uh, we had pictures of, uh, I had this, like, bib on, and he was trying to cut me out because I had hair then, <laughs> right? Um, but that was, that, was, that, was, that was funny, but that was Dave, you know what I mean? It was sort of like, um, you go out, you have a laugh, you forget about it. And then he said, I've got a surprise for you. And I said, oh, what's that? And he goes, I'm coming to your birthday party with some special guests. And he walked in with Phil and <laughs> Felix, you know what I mean? I was like, you found him. Mm. And I said, Felix, you coming back, mate? You know what I mean? But he was actually a good laugh. And it, we actually got him dancing on the dance floor. He was, uh, he was busting some moves. Um, Did you ever go any of Dave's parties at Camelot? Do you know what? I didn't. I, I, when he first moved into that house, um, I, I went, um, uh, I went. I went 
around his house a couple of times. Um, but he always said, oh, you know, I'm doing a party, I'm doing this. But he had like, I think he had like a dungeon in his thing and he used to stream it live on the internet. And he always used to say, oh, come out, it'd be funny. And I was like, mate, I'm married with kids. I'm not, if I sat my wife, what are you doing on Saturday night? I'm going to Dave's dungeon. And I don't know what's going to happen in the dungeon, but they're going to be streaming on the internet. She's going to be like, you ain't going to any fucking dungeons with Dave Courtney. So I think, um, I think I, I, yeah, I, I didn't go to any of his parties, but someone said to me, they were really good. You know, he said he had all sorts of DJs, celebrities, uh, the weird and wonderful, Dorman, all sorts. It was just literally like a party house from Friday to Sunday, you know. So. James was Dave's cameraman for many years and filmed Amazing. some bizarre situations. <laughs> bizarre situations. So mate, I was right not going there. <laughs> but, but honestly, when, when, uh, when I heard the news, I, I was I was Such a quite shocked because because you know for me you know Dave was always the life and the soul of the party. Every time I used to see him, either at a film premiere or an event, he'd always be like, "Oh boy, how you doing?" Blah blah. Yeah. And he'd always you know he'd always be funny. We'd always have a laugh, and I'd always just think, you know, this guy, uh, you know, he, he's, he's he's he was always like a big kid. He always wanted to about he always wanted to have a laugh he always wanted to make everyone happy and he's the sort of guy you'd ring him up and say oh dave you know i really want to meet this guy or can you help me with this and he'd do it you know what i mean and he was never out for himself you know he never he never um you know i'd i'd you know from from having a laugh with him at a night out in manchester at a garage night to then him turn up with these two people he'd been having a laugh about and he just and all my mates were rolling up with laughter going i can't believe you got and Phil Mitchell and Felix the address for your birthday party <laughs> after we was talking about them two months ago. But um, again, you know, uh, that was that was that was Dave. You know, but I mean, he's he he was always a practical joker. Um, I know, I know. One time, he, he he went to court and he turned up in court in a court jester's outfit. A punched cup. But what's what I mean? It's just like you know. But he he was he was he was you know showman. I know, I know a lot of people refer to him as a celebrity gangster. Um, but I think he, um, uh, what he did with, um, uh, what he did with his, his, his life is I think he just embraced it. He just went, look, you know, I'm a celebrity gangster. I'm Dodgy Dave. I've got my cigar. I've got my knuckle duster. I'm in a few movies, you know, come out my house and have a party. You know, he, he was, I, I think if, if, if you like partying, you like going out and having a laugh, you probably wouldn't have found a better person to do it with, you know? So rest in peace, Dave. Yeah, we filmed the reception he gave Michael Francis. That was really, he went out above and beyond. Um, Michael was blown away. And you watched Michael's show as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, which one was that? Was that? Um, Dave, Michael went to Dave's house. And oh, we, really? we filmed it, yeah, and he had all of his mates there and the cars and the guns and it was it was something else, yeah. All the show showcase cars and Amazing. I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, I'll have to see check it, it out. See it. Yeah. What did you think of the show? Um which one? Francis. Um, yeah, show. Francis is brilliant. I mean yeah. I mean I met Michael personally and we, we had a little chat and I I uh hosted uh I went to the one with Sir Trevor McDonald and I think the one in Brighton I think there was a, I'm trying to remember his name, one of the Ant Middleton or one of them 
you know, SAS guys that was on the telly was meant to be doing it. And then I think he broke his arm or something and he couldn't do it. And then I got a call saying, oh, do you want to do it? And I was like, love to. And I went and did it with him. But we had a great life. And uh, I think with Michael, what I, what I love about him is he's uh, just straight talker, you know, he can, and, he's, and he's educated. You know, when you talk to people, sometimes you speak to people that have got into crime and uh, they're not particularly bright, but then others are. And he's one of those guys that you could put him in any environment and he can have a conversation and there's something really personable about him and and he tells great stories and uh you know you know i i, I was a fan you know i i i i hadn't uh met him before that but i'd been to the event at the grosvenor mm. and heard him speak and heard trevor mcdonald said trevor mcdonald interview him and literally i was just sitting there going wow you know what a great story and then to actually then spend some time with him in brighton and then be able to do it again but you know so um, I think they went downhill. They went from Sir Trevor McDonald to Terry Stone. So they went, they went downhill after that. Um, but um, I think Michael is coming back and you're hosting it. I'm hosting again. Thank you to Kaz for having me host uh, last year. And thank you to Ella for inviting me to host Francis in 2024. Amazing. Check Amazing. it out if you viewers want to come along and, and yeah. Uh, watch that. Yeah, absolutely. So what's in the store for you, Terry? Um, well, I've got... Um, I've got some crazy stuff that I'm doing at the minute. Um, I've, I've, I'm putting together a, a UK sort of uh, rap film, a little bit like Top Boy. It's called Towers from the Trap. I love Top Boy. So we, we've got a script for that, and we've got a really good director called Nines, who's who's a famous rapper. Um, so we're going to be putting that together. Um, we've got a film called King of Crime, which is about John Palmer, um, which would be unbelievable. Uh, the only thing that slowed us down on that was obviously all these strikes, because um, on something like that, you can't make it cheap. So you need a big, big, big actor to carry that film. Um, and we're, we're doing a film about the rise and fall of the Shah of Iran, which mm. sounds crazy. <clears throat> um, but, um, yeah, it's a great story. Uh, if, if you've seen Argo, uh, obviously, I know it's Ben Affleck and that was a big success, but we're actually putting that together at the moment. Um, and so, so on the production side, uh, we've got these three movies that we want to make. Uh, we've got a host of TV series that we want to do, um, which we, we, we've kind of developed. And the next step now is to start pitching them out. Um, but again, you know, the thing that sort of held us back, we had COVID, which meant we couldn't go to America. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. And then obviously all these strikes started, uh, the war started. So, so what we've found really, I'd say from probably 2020 to 23. So the last three years, the whole, world has been in sort of turmoil so we've still been getting things done we're still making movies we're doing a podcast we're we're developing stuff you know we we've got a lot of the product the productivity hasn't slowed down at all but actually getting things done and 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 you know when you're making a film so many moving parts and you know obviously with the shah we we spoke to people in abu dhabi about filming in abu dhabi and they basically said you know we can't really have the film here because if we put money into it, you know, Ron might look at it as, you know, we're trying to say, oh, look, the last regime was really good. Um, you know, so they, they politely, but they, they're very, uh, I think Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, the, the, they don't, they always sort of, they're neutral. You know, they want people to go there and spend money. Mm. They don't want to take any political stance. They don't want to 
alienate anybody. So for them, that wasn't for them. But we've got other options in the Middle East, which we've had one person come back and say, you can film here. We're going to go there in January and have a look at locations. So I think that'll be happening next year. Um, and um, I think acting-wise, uh, you know, what, what happens in the world that I'm in is you'll get a call and you'll, they'll say, oh, can you do this audition tomorrow? Uh, so you don't really ever know what you're doing. Um, and for me, um, I'm selective on what I do now because, um, you know, I play the lead in Rise of the Foot Soldier Origins, Finney Jones, Craig Fairbrass, Keith Allen. So I work with some amazing actors, Ronald Manukian, George Russo, um, you know. So when you play a lead in a movie and that film had a wide theatrical release, Amazon put it out, it was in the top five on Amazon. You sort of think, as an actor... I've now done a lead role in a movie that's been a success. And it went out in America through Hulu, 60 million people. Um, So although I'm not Brad Pitt yet, (laughs) um, I I look at it and I just think, you know, for me to go from there, you know, what do I do next? And the thing is, you know, I I get offered all the time while we're doing the film. Do you want to be in it? I've got a little part. It's like, mate, you know, I'm not interested in doing a little part. I don't, if, if, a, if a new filmmaker's coming up and they want to do a short film or they want to work with me and they've got a budget, I don't mind helping those people because I want them to get up so that they can actually start making films because I've always been independent and I've always wanted to help people get a start in whatever they're doing. So I've always wanted to help people. So um, I always help people trying to get their independent films off. But as an actor, actually, if you run me up and said, oh, I'm doing a film, if it's not a major role, and it, I mean, look, if, if you said, oh, Brad Pitt's in it, there's only one scene, I'd say yes, right? But if it's doing a low-budget film with, you know, you know, actors that aren't well-known, unless I'm playing a main role in it, I, I, don't, I don't really want to do it, and I'd rather not do it because, you know, it's that thing where you become a victim of your own success. Mm. So, so my agent will put me up for stuff now and then I'll be like, wow, this is really good. And it's like, who am I going up against? Oh, Stephen Graham, Sean Bean. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to get this, am I? And they said, yeah, but they're ringing you to fucking audition for it. So it's great. You know, you're getting the call and it doesn't matter if you get it. The, the fact that they're thinking of you is good enough. So for me... It shows you're in the league if they're thinking yeah. of you. And, and you know, I did, a, I did a... There was another film that I did after that called The Last Heist. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, but that was a supernatural bank robbery film. Um, like, really, like, something that I, I you know, never... But I read the script and I thought, this is a really interesting movie. Mm. So um, what happened with that? That came out the year after Origins. So Origins come out in September 21. And uh, The Last Heist come out uh, November 2022. Uh, they re-released... So, yeah, the last time has come out in November 2022. And um, uh, we had the Rise of the Foot Soldier computer game come out in January 23. <laughs> they re-released the original Rise of the Foot Soldier. They'd done this remixed, remastered, modern-day version of it um, alongside the game in January. So ah. that came out, which was great. And it was funny because when I went and watched that movie on a big screen, Bear in mind, once you've seen it two or three times, you forget about it. Mm. So I probably haven't seen that film for, it's got to be 13 years. So I actually sat in the cinema and watched that film and I was like, this is actually pretty good. And I actually watched, and, and you know, as an actor, 
when when you watch yourself on the screen, you always go, oh, I don't really like watching myself. But when I watched that, I thought, actually, I did a f-ing good job in that. So I look back on it now and I think, wow, you know, now I know why that film has been so good and so strong and why it's still resonating now. And the fact they've remixed and remastered it and added a bit to it and re-released it in the cinema, I thought was amazing. So that was at the beginning of this year. And then, uh, and, and then the last heist, you know, is now on Amazon Prime. So anybody in the UK that wants to watch it that hasn't seen it can watch it for free. Thank me later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, then we had Rise of the Foot Soldier Vengeance, which I'm not in, but I was one of the producers on. Uh, that came out in September. Um, that went out, big cinema release. Um, it's now available on PVOD so people can, you know, watch it and buy it to keep at home. Um, and then, you know, as I said, next year we're working on those three films. So I think 2024 um, is going to be a really good year. Um, I've, I've, I've got a few other interests which are unfilm related. Uh, good pal of mine uh, I've known 20 years set up a property company in Dubai um, opened the office there in September I'm a director of his company um, which is very interesting um, you know I've always loved Dubai but never really thought about doing any business over there but I had an opportunity with him so obviously I took that um, and then a friend of mine has launched a vodka brand um, called NE10 I don't know if you've seen that I saw it on one of your podcasts. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so the NE10, uh, if you go on a periodic table and you're a geek, it means neon vodka, basically. Mm. Um, but that's fastest growing independent premium vodka in the country. Um, we've got massive things happening with it at the moment. It's going out into America. It's going out into Europe. We're, we're, we're getting the license for Dubai, so it's going to go out in the Middle East. So, you know, I've, I've, I've got a few other strings to my bow. Um, but all of this has come through acting filmmaking and and you know the opportunities come you know there's there's you know there's lots of uh there's lots of opportunities out there and you can say no to them but you know i i like to say yes to all of them (laughs) and because some of them aren't going to work but some are going to be great so i think you know i always have an open mind and like yourself sean you know you've written a lot of books you're doing a podcast you're now doing a tour with michael franzese you know and it's great and it's, it's exciting to uh to, to be to be doing something you enjoy, you know? Definitely. And your story's extremely inspirational. But can you call me a in the Tony Tucker voice before we finish? Sean Atwood, you stupid, no good, wrong and... <laughs> <laughs> all of... <laughs> all of Terry's links, socials, podcasts will be in the description box below this video. Um, so go down, support his work, check the book out. Audiobook's brilliant. There's so much more in the audiobook. Yeah, King, you, we've got a King of Clubs. So anybody that wants yeah. to listen to it or, 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 or buy a copy, you know, that's it's on Amazon, it's on Apple, it's everywhere. Yeah, you can so. stalk him on Instagram yep. for quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, do you know what? I should actually do a page called Coach. You should. And I should actually come up muggy pigs, dirty wrong and just, just, Val- just Valentine's Day. Christmas. So you can actually, Christmas. <laughs> See, what you could do, this is a good idea, right? You could actually have a page, right? And you could have quotes of the day and you could just, I, I think it's a good idea. I mean, you might get taken off Instagram, but I think what Do you realise how much muting funny. Joe's going to have to do? He's well, shaking, shaking his head. <laughs> Why well, can't you say, I thought you were allowed to say, can't you say, 
So oh, tell them man. the endearment where I come from. <laughs> what a journey. Give us a look. No, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. Yeah. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made, Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug-smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made Jews paid, learn how a British-born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Knife and a caution, all that, like. Yeah! And he's looking at me, and we went white, and he's gone, like. <laughs> what is it about a tough guy that fascinates us? Imagine I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, I'm not going down today. If I go down today, yeah, I'm dead. We're bringing you the very best of our interviews with Britain's hardest men. They made the mistake of bringing Billy Cubs. Iron bars and knives to a gunfight. No rules fighter bash, Stephen the Devil French, and my best friend, Wildman. Over two hours of terrifying tales of punch-ups, stabbings. That's what happens in that world. You, you leave people long enough, they get enough rope chain themselves. Attempted murders and exceptional all-round hardness. 